Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste have top ten lists. I guess that's another explosion. Sure. There it goes. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a critic. I have a list of a bunch of movies that are really, really good this year. And I'm sure my co-host does as well. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And I also have a list mm-hmm. of movies that were really, really good this last year, the year of 2020. Uh, it was a wild year, wasn't it? It was, uh, <laughs> it was a little cray. Little, little, little ups, little downs. Little downs. Um, yeah. You know, barely perceptible. Uh, (laughs) You can't can't see me strangle Whitney right now, but I assure you I am. Uh, We were trapped at home most of the year. We didn't get to see a lot of these films in theaters. I think the last film I saw in theaters might have been Matthew Barney's film Redoubt. Well, are you did you uh, go to a, did you go to a drive-in and see anything new? Were you talking about like inside an actual an inside a movie house? Theater. Yeah, that was that okay. was the I think that might have been the last one I saw the in last theaters one, this year. The last one the, I saw was definitely the Hunt. The Hunt, okay, yeah, which I liked more than most. Okay, yeah. Uh, the last one I projected at my movie theater job was The Bitter Tea of General Yen, of uh, uh, Frank Capra movie. That's cool. Uh, one of his more obscure ones. Uh, but this was kind of a. Because of the closure of theaters and because of uh, just sort of the general chaos of everything in the film business, this led to a rather eclectic lineup of films. Yeah. A lot of critics and a lot of audiences had their attention now spread out a little bit further than perhaps it would have been otherwise. The way that most years roll out, Mm. uh, the major studios tend to dominate the conversation with a series of releases from either... Noteworthy franchises, franchises like Marvel, Mm. DC, Fast and the Furious, James Bond. All those big sequels. Yeah. Or films from noteworthy filmmakers who may or may not be working within that paradigm. Mm. Your Christopher Nolans, your Steven Spielbergs, your Martin Scorsese's. And as a result, those films tend to suck up a lot of air. Yeah. And there's so many other movies that oftentimes people struggle to even keep up with hearing about, let alone watching. Mm -hmm. And this year, with most of the studios basically taking all of their, what would normally be their A-level product, the stuff they spent the most money on, the stuff they would have marketed all year round. You would have seen ads all over town. Yeah, basically everything up uh, after like the first couple of weeks of March got shoved aside. And Mm -hmm. we got a couple... All throughout the year, some animated films, a couple of blockbusters took a stab Mm. at hitting theaters, stuff like Tenet. Uh, But for the most part, this was a year in which we kind of got to see what the world would be like if movies weren't dominated by the same stuff over Mm. and over again. And we got to see films that were already being made. Most of them were, only a couple of movies were shot this year. Mm. Like, we're talking about movies that were already going to be out there. Films that otherwise might have really struggled to find an audience. Finding a giant audience. Or at the very least, a very, very appreciative audience mm. at home who might not otherwise have been able to prioritize the time. Because, dang it, I gotta go see, I I don't know, Black Widow Fast and Furious 9 or whatever the hell because that takes an hour to go to the theater and back. We got 
parking, trailers, and everything. I don't have time to see another movie this weekend. Hmm. It's a practical issue for a lot of people. Yeah, whereas whereas at home, we can sort of marathon through a lot of better films. Mm -hmm. Uh, Words spread a lot more quickly on some smaller, uh, critically acclaimed movies because Mm -hmm. we could now devote the time to them. Yeah. And uh, as such... And because the majority of the films that we were talking about were readily available at the push of a button. Yeah. So like, oh, all of a sudden, everyone's talking about this movie, Happiest Season, or host or palm springs and oh i can just watch that now yeah i don't have to like wait until i have an opportunity to go to a theater oh shit that is the upside of this isn't it mm-hmm. uh as such i have a lot of films on my list uh because i, I saw a lot of films this year yeah. and i saw a lot of really good films this year yeah uh and i i'm kind of grateful because those big blockbuster movies usually don't hold my interest in the same way they tend to with the general film going public I suppose yeah. uh, given the the amount of ink that is often spilled over these types of movies you would think that they're the only things we're interested in yeah. I'm interested in a lot more I'm a, I'm a film critic I'm trying to delve a lot more deeply and this year uh, in a weird way gave me an opportunity to do that uh, a lot more passionately than I have been able to in the past I really uh, treasure these uh, year-end lists because a lot of the time throughout the year you and I have conversations about movies and we're often more or less on the same page. It's pretty rare that we virulently disagree about anything, mm-hmm. but at the end of the year, we finally get to see what made a bigger impact on us, and I feel like these lists tend to demonstrate the divides between us. Okay. Because <laughs> you definitely tend to skew. And these are I'm not mm-hmm. talking about films you just like. I'm talking about movies that make a real impact on you that you carry with you. And for me, that's what a best of the year list is because Mm. if I, if a movie has that kind of impact on me, it's typically a very good movie and there's no shortage of very good movies. My uh, runner's up list is longer than my regular list. And those (laughs) are all highly recommended, excellent Mm. motion pictures that could on another day, have been on my top 10. But for me, the best of the year lists are the ones that when all is said and done, I keep coming back to these in my mind. Okay. don't forget them. They mean something to me. I keep thinking about them when I think about the year in context. Um, these are the movies that in my head seem highly likely to last in my estimation. Okay. They're not just good. They're the movies that hit me hard. Okay. Uh, and in my experience, my tastes run a little bit more in that level. Mm. A little bit more genre than yours. A little bit more tendency to go horror, sci-fi. And also a little bit more mainstream. And I do indeed have Mm. a couple of quote-unquote mainstream, quote-unquote wide-release movies that made my list that, regardless of quality, like, obviously I think they're quality, um, really did have an impact on me, even though they're kind of, like, designed by a corporation to do so. And I can't deny that. Hmm. All right. So it should be interesting to, to look it over. I'm curious how much overlap we end up having. Probably none. <laughs> you think <laughs> none? Well, may, maybe one or two, but it, it seems like this was such a, a s- wide sprawling year that we were able to sort of follow our bliss. Yeah. And uh, you were able to sort of pursue and find the films you were passionate about, mm-hmm. and I was able to do the same. And, That's a good point. Um, I'm the only critic I know who included a Quibi film on their top ten list. I saw <laughs> I, you, you gave a little preview on Twitter, and uh, I was like, you scamp. <laughs> You, you delightful know scamp. We're going to get to, you know, why don't we start there? Um, why not? Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm going to run down my top 10 the way we usually do our top 10 lists. Yes. That is to say, I have a number one 
the other ones are all interchangeable. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, who cares what's, you know, vying for seventh place? It doesn't matter. These are all... Oh, oh, I can't believe I had to put the seventh instead of eighth. Doesn't Mm. matter. Every single thing is a top-level recommendation. And and indeed, a good chunk of my runners-up are also in my top ten list. Yeah. Uh, I just had to limit myself to ten, just because that's the rule. Well, we have to cut it off somewhere, don't we? You know, the podcast has to end. (laughs) Eventually. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to give a shout-out to Wireless, Hmm. which uh, was a Quibi film. Uh, it was you know, presented in 10-minute chunks. Each chunk was a different percentage of battery life on the main character's telephone. And the premise was, it's about a, a teenager. He's driving to a party uh, on these, bar- uh, these completely abandoned uh, snowbound roads. He's trying to get to a friend's house and also make excuses for like taking the car and doing, uh, you know, leaving some mess behind at home. And he gets to talk to his mom. He's played by Andy McDowell. He's played by, um, uh, Dudemar McDudenstein. Ty, 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 Ty Sheridan. Ty Sheridan. That's it. It's played by Ty Sheridan. That's how I, that's how I come up with the answers at the Schmodown. I just kind of sound them out. Taylor, Taylor, Ty Sheridan. There's Taylor, there's Tyler, there's Phil Moran, there's Hayes. Um, there's William Henry Harrison. He died in 30 days. Uh, a little Simpsons reference for you. But uh, while he's on the telephone, uh, we start to hear in his conversation that he's been caught in a couple lies and he's trying to cover for them. And he's calling other friends to cover for some of these lies. And we slowly learn uh, over the course of the film that he's actually uh, an alcoholic. He's, he's uh, not yet 21. And he's already an alcoholic. And this is something that he's inherited from his dad who died. Uh, and... That, that's an interesting enough story, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You'd see that in any kind of movie. What Quibi did was they added a gimmick. You can hold your tele... Because Quibi was telephones only, you could hold your telephone sideways. You'd see Ty Sheridan on, just sort of in the car by himself for most of it. It's like lock in that regard. Yeah. But if you held your phone upright, you could see whatever was on his phone at the time. That included uh, like whatever he was listening to, like a playlist of what he was listening to in the car on the radio, or when he made a video call. So you could actually see other actors if you held your phone upright. Interesting. And you could switch back and forth to your heart's content. Now, you were telling me when we reviewed this mm. film that there would be times in which if you looked at his phone, it would reveal elements of the plot that you might not otherwise have been privy to, that he was lying about something. Yeah, like you, that kind of information is eventually communicated, but it can be communicated that way as well. It okay. kind of com- can come at you at different times depending on how you're watching it. That's um, neat. It's neat. It's a neat gimmick. It's so neat, in fact, it makes me want to start talking about Quibi as this sort of bold, failed experiment in media presentation, yeah. uh, you know, we're film critics. We have to sort of be out there. We have to be open to sort of new ways of presentation. Uh, I mean, I think that high frame rate stuff looks bad, but you know, it's, I'm, interesting. I'm, it's interesting. And I'm glad yeah. somebody's out there and, and I'm knows, happy to talk about and it. Maybe eventually they'll, they'll nail it. And mm. the, all of these sort of awkward experiments, like, you know, digital filmmaking looks great now. Yeah, it like, didn't it, always. No, there was a time when when we saw a movie and it was shot on digital, and there was a few filmmakers who just leaned into it and knew how to make it look good. Like look mm. at like Michael Mann's like Miami Vice or Collateral. He yeah, knew how or, to just or Danny Boyle is like using yeah. like that aesthetic, not, to, not to pretending to make it look like cinema, letting it look digital. They made it look good, but for a solid decade, 
maybe decade and a half when there were movies that were shot on digital, you could tell. Yeah, like the, and they were not convincing. The, the blacks were like gray, and there were a lot of yeah, particles, lot of crush, and everything seemed. Yeah. yeah, there was there was a lot of just ugly photographer photography and projection but, at the time. But all of those, you'd say what you, what you want to call them, missteps, experiments, mm. whatever. They eventually helped get us to yeah. the point where it looks really, really well, great. I remember seeing um, Star Wars Episode Two. Yeah. in theaters with digital projection and that, that film was shot digitally and yep. it was one of the earlier high profile films like big first, studio film I think it was the first Star Wars movie shot that way because the, the yeah, Phantom that's... Menace actually was shot on film in real locations yeah they actually like yeah. built sets I mean there's uh, a lot of CG yeah, episode yeah. 2 was a lot more artificial and it really looked the part mm-hmm. it, it was not a good looking film and it was a bad projection fast forward a decade I see the film Prometheus uh, another science fiction film that was shot digitally and Digital photography had advanced so much that I realized there was more detail in these crisp digital images than there could have ever possibly been on film. Digital had surpassed film in terms of just visual information. So I think Quibi is scraping against something really interesting uh, with something like wireless, which is, is kind of a gimmick, but it's also a new storytelling way to convey information a little bit differently than we're used to getting from traditional cinema. See, that's the thing that excited me about this one. This mm. is one that I'm actually, again, the Quibi, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this, mm. we did a whole episode, or strike that, you and B. Peterson, because yeah. I, I didn't get a chance to do my research, uh, did a whole episode of Cancel Too Soon about Quibi the channel, and you reviewed mm. like a couple of dozen oh, yeah, different all, shows and movies. Everything we had managed, to, between the two of us, yeah. had managed to see. And uh, it, fortunately, it uh, looks like a lot, of, I'm not sure how much, if, if it's all, but mm. a lot of the Quibi original content looks like it's going to be saved and yeah. uh, it's going to air on the Roku channel. Yeah, Ro- Roku bought all of Quibi's content. Yeah. Uh, well... We'll see how much of that well, that actually is, but yeah. But also, also Quibi didn't own a lot of its content. They owned the rights to it for a certain amount of time, so eventually mm. those filmmakers, TV producers, whatever, they can do something else mm. with it. But for the time being, eventually, hopefully soon, all this stuff will be on Roku, and you can see wireless on Roku. It's not like a lost film Man. anymore, because it could have been. But what I thought was really cool was when I was looking at Quibi and I was watching the stuff that I was watching, mm. um, it was indeed designed to be watched in either sort of widescreen or mm. like shoebox format yeah. I don't know. Uh, or upright. And what I found was interesting was that a lot of times they would just be sort of cropped mm. if I put it upright. However, I would also find that sometimes randomly in the middle of it, there would be wholly different shots that were clearly designed for, this isn't going to work if we crop it, we're not conveying the information, this shot has to be different. Mm. So there was a real concerted effort to make it really mm. function that way and really explode the idea of the quote-unquote correct aspect ratio. But what, yeah. what made wireless sound so exciting was this William Castle <laughs> showman element. Yeah, yeah. They, they were trying to take full advantage of this technology yeah. and use it in a way that would promote the story rather than just be a, a, another way to consume media. Yeah. Um, and... That got me really excited, yeah. and so as such, I'm going to put this on my well, list of the best films of the year because that experimentation worked so well. But yeah, that, that was the point I really mm. want to make there because we talked so much about the gimmick, and mm. just it's also a good movie. Uh, also, also it's a good movie. Yeah. Like I wouldn't be talking about it if it was a piece of crap. It would just be yeah. an interesting gimmick. Yeah, uh, but it it actually is a good drama, and a lot of the tension is ratcheted up if you start switching back and forth. 
there's a, a point in the in the film where Ty Sheridan his phone runs out of juice. So if you hold your phone upright, it's just a black screen. You can still hear the soundtrack of the movie, but there's nothing going on on that phone anymore. That's fun. Yeah. All right. Well, my number ten. I'm going to follow your lead actually, right. and I'm going to pick a film that was ultimately very, very, very technologically focused. Mm-hmm. Also, very keyed into. 2020 and specifically 2020. Oh, I'm glad you listed this film. This yeah. is on my runners up. I know uh, what this, you're talking about. This is a movie that I initially quite liked. I have a few quibbles with it. But what I found over time is when I thought about the movie that kind of defined 2020, that when mm. we look back, there were made there were better movies, but this is the one that like I feel like kind of grasped what we were going through most quickly. Mm. Uh, and that is Host. Yeah, uh, a very interesting found footage horror movie directed by Rob Savage, uh, and it takes place entirely over a Zoom call mm. as a group of people who are friends. They're all socially distancing. They're isolating, uh, and they are getting together in order to find some form of connection with one another. And what they decide to do this week is they are going to hold an online seance Mm -hmm. in a very trendy, very, very post-ironic kind of way. Uh, And some people are really into it and taking it really seriously. And what we were discovering is that just because some people say something needs to be taken seriously, just because we're talking about issues of life or death, does not mean everyone is going to take Mm -hmm. it seriously. And as a result, uh, the seance goes horribly wrong and people start dying. Uh, the the gimmick is uh, they're not taking the seance seriously. They they of course because this is a horror film summon a, a death demon of some sort. Right. But even though they're on Zoom calls and in different locations, this demon has access to all of them. Yeah. It it can be in many places at once. Well, now. because again, once once you get into the ethereal realm, connection is meaningless. Mm. But what also is, uh, uh, obviously and and rather on the nose, but effectively so. An infection. Mm. They have all got together. They all did something unsafe. And now they're all reaping the consequences of this. Whether they were unsafe or merely associated with someone who was unsafe. I mean, Mm. these are all people who have uh, functionally taken off their masks. They're just being whoever they are. And yeah, one person really screws everyone (laughs) over and they all Mm. suffer really badly. Now, Conceptually, as a metaphor for everything that's going on, it is astounding how quickly this movie came together. And that deserves <laughs> that deserves seriously a lot of fucking credit. This movie came out in late July. Lockdown started in March. Yeah. They now, made it they, they were able to nail down the language of how we communicate via yeah. Zoom calls. Now well, and, and again, immediately. and again, this would have been a good movie anyway. But simply by in, in, mm-hmm. acknowledging that this is taking place during COVID, and connecting a very straightforward, this would have been a good movie even in another year. Mm-hmm. But connecting that to current events and acknowledging that without being too in your face about it, not mm-hmm. like trying to make a huge point, just letting the story play out, remarkably effective. The accuracy involved in just in terms of like the way people communicate with each other online is something that until this year, a lot of people probably would have found a little alienating because mm. not everyone communicates that way, especially a lot of older people who got used to various other forms of communications. I've made way more Skype and zoom and 
whatever calls this year than I ever had before in my life. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I'm a little slow to adopt these new technologies. I'd gotten kind of used to the shit that I knew. Um, and now a movie like Host really gets you. And mm. it's a movie that is more effective at home. Because you're watching it on the screen where this would be happening if you were participating in it. Yeah. Now, yeah, that's and... a gimmick that's been done before in other movies. The Unfriended films, for example. But it's never worked better than this. Except maybe the movie Searching. Uh, yeah, Searching was really good. This, this one's really good. I do appreciate how they use the tech itself as uh, as conduits for jump scares. Mm-hmm. Uh, the notion of, uh, and my son is doing his kindergarten via Zoom call. Yeah. Not ideal. And uh, he has already discovered the buttons you can push to like give yourself automatic uh, like sunglasses to oh, appear yeah, on yeah, your yeah. face. Those little uh, facial alteration programs. Um, that's used to really scary effect in host. Yeah. <laughs> if you come up with a gimmick, if you come up with a the very distinct premise, mm. it is on you as a storyteller to make the most of it. Don't just like do it once or twice and then tell any other story you could have told any other way. And host effectively does that. Mm. It's also worth noting. This movie is short. It's 50 minutes. It is 50 minutes on. That is technically feature length. According to the Academy Awards, 41 minutes and over counts. Mm. It reminds you how short a movie can be and still be completely gripping and not feel like anything is missing from it. Yeah. If this movie were 90 minutes, it would have dragged. There would have been padding. There would have been extra characters that are completely unnecessary. Like, I'm not saying it couldn't have worked, mm. but we've gotten so used to movies just taking up space. Yeah. That to see something this lean, mean, efficient, smart, effective, genuinely scary, is a real breath of fresh air. And that it ended up sort of typifying what we were going through. And that it did so through the horror genre. Not trying to, like, tell some, like, epic, sad, tragic romance or something. But just acknowledging that this is a time in our history as a world. Mm where we are basically tr- all trapped and full of anxiety and we're we're genuinely worried the, for our lives and for the lives of the people mm. around us we're all in a horror movie already the, it the, only takes one extra step to get you there the, the demon is inside with us and and yeah. that's yeah that's really brilliant it's a great movie uh, i i really liked it too and like i said it's on my runners up uh and like i said my runners up are also my top 10 this yeah, year yeah i got There's a lot so of really many great really, really really good movies um well speaking of movies that really summed up uh 2020 um i have seen uh, no better film that really kind of encapsulated everything about the trump era than the documentary feels good man ah okay uh, I, just, I never got and, around to this one uh feels good man is uh starts out as a documentary about uh, matt fury who is the inventor of pepe the frog hmm. uh pepe the frog you probably know from fringe right-wing racist groups. Yeah, it became, it's, uh, it's officially considered um, yeah. uh, a hate symbol. No, Pepe and, the Frog. Yeah, Pepe the Frog. Um, of course, Pepe the Frog wasn't a hate symbol. Pepe the Frog was just a, a funny cartoon character uh, invented by Matt Fury, who uh, he just... What was the name of... Uh, I think it was just called, like, Good Time Boys or some such thing. Yeah, some generic... Um, yeah, and it was about, like, some post-college 20-something guys, but they're all animal people, and they're just living in an apartment and exploring being slobby and trying to survive and figuring out what their lives are all about. It's about that sort of quarter-life crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
at some point uh, when meme culture started to explode, little bits of comic strips started to leak their way into meme culture and Pepe the Frog started to leak its way uh, down into the rather horrible dregs of 4chan and uh, other, I think there's also an 8chan, the place where a lot of uh, extremists came to hang out. And they were using uh, Pepe the Frog in a lot of really horrendous memes because the people, and they interview a lot of people who were using 4chan and spewing a lot of this hate speech. Uh, they explained that these were sort of outsiders and they went into the 4chan because it was their space. And in order to make sure other people stayed out, they affected the most horrendous speech they possibly could. Yeah. And they had at the ready all of these horrible racist images, often involving Pepe the Frog, to offend people to keep them out. And it didn't take very long for the line between irony and the genuine article to vanish entirely. And it became yeah. well, once you genuinely, a genuinely once, hate group. Once you normalize that mm. kind of speech. Yeah. It becomes a it, lot easy just to use it genuinely. Well, it just, it just becomes the reality in mm. which you live. It's mm. these things are mm. all of a sudden okay to say, and no one's actually questioning you or saying, mm. Hey, that's an incredibly poor taste. You're not, that's not cool. If people are actually hurt. Mm. And yeah, it just it just festers, mm. you know. the The way uh, modern political discourse became dominated by essentially troll culture yeah. is detailed uh, very intelligently in Feels Good Man, mm. uh, and how through the lens of one of its most uh, popular symbols, which was Pepe the Frog. And they talked to Matt Fury and how he tries to bring Pepe back. He wrote a strip where Pepe died. Like, yes, effectively tried to kill off the character. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, came came out and was, like, trying to get uh, some, like, legal action. Can he get this thing back? And unfortunately, once it's in meme culture, it's, like, not something you can really get a lasso around any longer. Yeah, so, you can't delete it off of everyone's, you know, laptops. So he, yeah, he, yeah. So it's about Matt Fury having this big reckoning. He's actually a really gentle, kind guy who just wanted to write this yeah. comic strip about frogs hanging out and, you know, and peeing with the door open. You know, mm-hmm. kind of sloppy dudes. He had no idea. That sounds... You can't prepare for this sort of thing. No, I can only imagine how absolutely nightmarish it must be to have something you've created co-opted by people who yeah. use it for just repulsive intent. Yeah. I I can't uh, even imagine what that's like. And uh, yeah, watching Hillary Clinton giving a speech during the 2016 campaign and having some dickhead in the back yell out Pepe, just the word Pepe is like, how far has this gone? Where, how did we get here? I think feels good, man. Let's us know how we got here in, in a, in a way that I think a lot of other films have, have not necessarily been, willing to delve into we're we're going to be mm. over time and as we start getting a little bit of distance mm. we're going to be asking ourselves these questions a lot and mm. i suspect we're going to get a lot of documentaries and we're going to start getting narrative films mm. that are going to attempt to tackle what the fuck happened yeah because and i'm cause not looking look, forward to a lot of them some no, of them are going to be awful these, some of them are going to be so <laughs> tone deaf some mm. of them are going to try to make it so feel good mm. and there's it's not every but everything's okay well no 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 no, no, just... <laughs> no we have to reckon with this we, we lifted the rock uh yeah the 
these last four years have been uh, a, an aberration in, in American history in a lot of ways. And I think when it comes to the mindset and the culture and where a lot of these attitudes were born, yeah. Feels Good Man is able to sort of look into the primordial muck and figure, kind of figure it out. I'm going to take a hard right turn. All right. I am going to highlight a movie that in this incredibly difficult year, mm. and a, a year where I've just been on just pins and needles the entire time and absolutely terrified. And I'm every time I go out, I'm practically wearing a hazmat suit. And uh, we went to one, we went to the drive in twice. Once was to see Jaws on 4th of July. Okay. Great show. Awesome. Glad we did it. Uh, and then we went one more time and we went just to go. We need to get out of the house. It was the safest thing we could do. And we picked a movie that we figured probably sucked. <laughs> like there's because that's that's what you wanted to drive in, right? Mm. You want it, you wanted to see something cheesy and just sit back in your car. You can talk, so you don't want to talk over something good. <laughs> you want to talk over something kind of cheesy or whatever, and you uh-huh. can just have a good time. And this movie ended up being so damn good we didn't do that. It kind of ruined the date night. It was oh, so I'm good. So, I'm so sorry. Because it was absorbing, it was funny, it was entertaining, it was imaginative. Mm. Um, it did everything I want this kind of movie to do. And it's Love and Monsters. <laughs> it's a good movie, Love and Monsters. A movie, I really liked Love and Monsters. Yeah, it's really, it's just, it, it, it's the kind of movie that like, again, maybe it's not the most epically profound movie of the yeah. year, but find a real flaw in it. It just it, it works. Does, I, I think when I reviewed it, I said it does everything right. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a post-apocalyptic romantic comedy about uh, it's it's the future and uh, invertebrate creatures have now, due to uh, uh, massive cataclysm, grown to enormous size and have taken over the surface of the planet. Yeah. Insects, yeah. Uh, uh, some amphibians, uh, and uh, crabs and fish yeah. and whatever. No, no mammals. No mammals. Basically, anything that isn't a mammal has grown into an enormous size and has taken over the planet, and almost mm. all of humanity is dead. And the few outposts that have survived are living underground in a bunker in social isolation. <clears throat> And uh, it stars Dylan O'Brien from the Maze Runner movies, really charming young actor. And he is in a bunker where everyone has a purpose except him. Mm. They are in a relationship and or they are useful at something. They're good at something. And he is a nice guy. Everyone really mm. likes him, but he, he's got nothing. There's nothing for him there. His, his, he's quarantining and there's nothing for him. To, there's nothing driving him anymore. He's just there. And through sheer luck, after years of trying, he's been able to contact a girl he went on one great date with just before the monsters attacked. <laughs> like a few years before. And he's, he thinks she's amazing. He's deeply in love with her. And she's in an outpost miles away. It would take, what, like a week to get there on foot. Hmm. Through, a, da- through dangerous territory where there's monsters everywhere. Giant monsters. And again, he's got no skills Mm. he's not a fighter he chokes under pressure like he's just not ill-equipped for it but he's got nothing to live for so he decides he's going to take the plunge and enter into this world of monsters and it's delightful (laughs) the monsters are really cool so cool 
it ha- it's it's like Zombieland, but without that sort of cynicism that, yeah. that, that lurks around Zombieland. Yeah, because the monsters are all threatening and exciting, and it, and it's all really really great. But it doesn't have this tone of like we're fucked and we deserve to be fucked. It's mm. we're fucked, and there and there's a place for that. Yeah, and not not no 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 no, but de- like decrying cynical. No, humor. no no no, but it's it's there's something really refreshing about finding a way to do this kind of a post-apocalyptic story without it being a gigantic downer. The world collapsed. Mm. But through human decency, through an attempt to, and throughout the film, he's trying to like catalog these monsters and learn like how to survive with and around them Mm. through scientific method and through love, genuine Mm. love, not, not bullshit. Everybody's, you know, dancing around the maypole. Like we're talking about like actually caring about other people and other creatures, even the monsters Mm. themselves. He learns how to survive in a world that got fucked over. And if he can survive, anyone can survive. And that's what gives us hope. It's not about killing all the monsters. It's about learning to live with what we've done. This is one that should, uh, once people can have slumber parties again, make a good slumber party movie. Great slumber party movie. Uh, Just, you know, a lot of good mayhem. There's a really sweet moment between the protagonist and a dying robot. Oh my God, that scene. It's it's the best scene in the movie, and it's just, it's so sweet, and it's so genuine, and yet it's kind of whimsical at the same time. It hits this weird kind of Spielbergian note that Mm. I think a lot of filmmakers strive for and don't really hit. Or at least that uh, sort of, orbit of Spielberg that a lot of filmmakers had, you know, mm-hmm. you're, that sort of Amblin entertainment yeah, vibe. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a big Amblin vibe to a lot of uh, Love and Monsters. Um, if, if you know where to find these, like that one, and uh, there was another one that was also a really good mm-hmm. slumber party movie called Vampires vs. the Bronx. Oh, that made my runners but, up. I really okay. like that one a lot. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, it's a that's little another, shabbier than this, but it's really good. Uh, shabby, yes, but it does have that kind of sweet, genuine kid appeal that I don't get from a lot of kid entertainments. I saw yeah. stuff like Trolls and Scoob, and those were just big commercial pieces of fluff. Yeah, that's like, just those adults in, trying yeah. to sell kids on what adults think kids should think is fun. Yeah. Vast of Night, uh, not Vast of Night, spoiler alert, we'll be talking about that soon. <laughs> uh, uh, Vampires versus the Bronx, the other VA movie. Mm. Uh, Vampires versus the Bronx is is a film that really does feel like they were on a kid wavelength and they knew what kids wanted, were talking about and wanted to see and how they're also interacting with the world. And love and monsters is a little less socially conscious than that. But I think it, it, it tells its story in a way that the allegory can have an impact. Mm. Like it doesn't feel like it exists in a vacuum and it's just a flight of fancy. Like it, it does seem to actually understand that the world can be in chaos, but it doesn't have to make us bad people. Mm. And I think that's a really, really great message in a movie that is also just incredibly fun. What mm-hmm. a, this is maybe the best escapist entertainment I had all year, but I didn't feel like I was being irresponsible for escaping into it. Okay, It's such a good film, and I just, again, it's just one of those movies where profound... No, but at some at some point you have to look at yourself and say it's a list of the best movies of the year, and this movie doesn't have a flaw. Yeah. So yeah. where else does it go except on the <laughs> best movies of the year list? I, I, you know what? I I support this. I support your your inclusion of it because it is yeah. quite a good movie. What's next? Um. Well, well, since we spoiled it, let's just talk about the Vast of Night. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Vast of Night is great. This is uh, a a lot of the films on my list were kind of. Uh, 
low budget filmmaking or kind of um, subdued or low key kind of filmmaking yeah. at, at their height. And uh, the Vast of Night does a lot with a very with little. Uh, it takes place in the 1950s. Uh, the opening shot is we zoom into a television that's telling sort of a, a Twilight Zone type of an episode. So we know we're living in this uh, world where th- anything might happen. And if this doesn't get awards for cinematography, I don't know what deserves it. Oh, my God. Uh, we this get... is the best cinema. Listen, there's a yeah. lot of great movies this year. Yeah. This is the best cinematography bar None. So it takes place in a small town, and it is about uh, a pair of uh, reporters. One is a little bit more experienced, uh, another one is just learning the ropes, and they are interviewing people in this small town whose only real obsession is like high school basketball. Uh, And we follow them, uh, the camera follows them through these long sustained shots of them going up to people, interviewing them. We hear their conversation. We get to know them very, very intimately without any close-ups or editing. We actually just yeah. hear the way they talk and we hear the way they interact with the, the world. And through all of this wonderful drifting camera movements, we get an excellent sense as to the geography and the size of this town. That's something that's cool. There's so mm. many long take, mm. follow the actors around kind of shots where people are just kind of showing off, mm. you know, like that movie Extraction, which came out this year, which is a bad movie with some mm. cool shots in it. So yeah, fun violence. That's all I can really say about yeah, Extraction. But like, you know, the, those really long takes of people killing each other Okay, but to what end? What mm. narrative purpose is this serving other than we're showing off and making this look cool? It's, and here you're, we're getting we're getting a sense of just how small this town is, mm. and yet also just how big this town is, how completely isolated it is, how empty the streets are because everyone at this basketball mm. game. It's this incredibly effective use mm. of showy cinematography, but in a very controlled mm. way. And. Uh, so we're getting a lot of this really kind of showy cinematography, uh, like the camera drifts through windows and stuff. But yeah, it's not in a braggadocious sort of David Fincher kind of way where mm. he's going to like zoom the camera through the handle on a coffee pot and, you know, in, in, like he did in Panic Room. Uh, but yeah, this one just sort of drifts and gives us a sense of this uh, this town. So we're getting this good visual dynamic. But and here's the other part I really appreciate about The Vast of Night. We get most of the story through telling and not showing it's all dialogue it's things heard over the the radio there's one sustained shot of one of the main characters when she's at a switchboard listening to a telephone call and the camera just stays on her as she listens Mm -hmm. she's not moving around there's no business on screen and it's riveting and you can't take your eyes off the screen because we're hearing this really eerie story Mm -hmm. of perhaps an alien invasion yeah so the the basic premise is Mm -hmm. there's this big basketball game in 1950s new mexico really small town middle Mm. of the desert so the entire town is there except for a couple of old people sitting in their houses uh the uh woman uh, the young woman at the switchboard she's like a 17 year old girl who's working at night uh just handling phone calls and the guy who runs a local radio station he's the late night dj Mm. and that's it and they're starting to these this radio station and this telephone operator are hearing these strange sounds, mm. which might be UFOs. And they start asking around and the people who are up late at night and have a lot of baggage and are just desperate to reach out are connecting with them about the experiences that they have had and the performances 
<laughs> the vocal performances yeah, yeah. are so impeccable. There's a guy. Hold on, I want to see if I can find him. There's a guy who just gives um, a speech over the phone, mm. just about like how he might have worked in like an Area 51 uh, kind of situation. Is just a riveting, riveting vocal performance. Bruce Davis is the actor. Okay. Incredible performance. Uh, there's a woman named Gail Cronauer who uh, shows up uh, late in the film, and she has a story about her child who may or may not have been involved in an alien abduction situation that is just hairs on the back of your neck good. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, this flies in the face of everything every single thing you're told in film school show don't tell mm. they use the best and most impressive cinematography of the year for a movie about dialogue and sound effects and unlike something like mank where it just feels like we're just desperately trying to flash up this scene so that maybe you'll be distracted enough and not realize just kind of how contrived the writing is it's all there to build atmosphere mm. and tension God damn, is it a good movie? It, it is. It, I I was, I was astonished. Like it, it was partway through the movie, I was watching this, and I just realized I like had to catch myself at how astonished I was yeah. by what was going on. I was like, this is like I was witnessing a, f a new filmmaker coming up with something really interesting. Yeah, uh, a, a new talent that I just knew we had to latch on. Uh, to. The the director is Andrew Patterson. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote the film with uh, Craig W. Sanger. Uh, I want to give a shout out to the cinematographer as well because keep mm. an eye on these people. Yeah. M.I. Litten Men's. Uh, this movie was shot like five years ago now. This movie had mm. trouble getting into film festivals. And it finally well, ended because up... because it's so low-key, I guess I could see why. I, I appreciate that, like... I, I, I don't actually get it. I've been seeing so many movies at film festivals, high-profile film festivals, that were nowhere near as good as this. Mm. I don't get it. Yeah, and I'm yeah. so glad that like this was able to find digital distribution. And this came out in May. Man, any other May, this would have gotten swallowed whole and no one would have seen it. I might not have been able to make the time for it. And that shames me. And looking mm. at something like The Vast of Night reminds me that we need to desperately make time for cinema outside of what we are being aggressively sold. Yeah. And really yeah. give a look at films that otherwise might completely fly under our radars. Because mm. this... This is something very, very special. Right. And this if I if if I were ranking these, this would be like my two or three. It's really, yeah, really good. Yeah. yeah. Nomadland is is uh, I just said Nomadland. Give away. Uh Vast of Night is high up on my list. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about Nomadland eventually, I'm sure. Okay. Well let's talk about Nomadland. Because <laughs> it's on my top ten. Okay, it's not your number one though. It's not my number oh, one. Okay, all right, well let's go. There. Uh, I but I really dug Nomadland. Uh this is the latest from from Chloe Zhao. It's uh Francis McDormand giving yet another brilliant performance uh in a natural sort of way that I'm not used to seeing from Francis McDormand. She can play broad character roles, she can play she very natural. Yeah. This is the most natural she's ever been, and it is uh, another very timely film about uh, economic desperation in America. And I think it very methodically, very naturally, and in a very understated sort of way, takes us step by step through uh, a whole class of people that is literally forgotten by America. Forget this 
notion that there are classes that have been forgotten by the politicians. These are literally forgotten people who are living off of the grid, who have no homes, who are nomads. And uh, it's about the practical considerations of this life and how the country has made it necessary for a lot of people to live like this because now now there are whole economic systems that rely Mm -hmm. on this particular kind of labor. Yeah. 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 Uh, Just this sort of transient labor. These people who live in a a transient lifestyle, they're constantly moving and they talk about the practical. I liked every bit of all all of their practical concerns, the things you need in your Mm -hmm. van, the way to take care of your waste, the way, uh, the places you can stay, the places you cannot stay where to park. So the cops don't knock on your window. Uh, and while you're sleeping in your van and where you can get e- quick, easy work for maybe a week or two, just so you have a few bucks yeah. to move on to the next. Uh, and how uh, a lot of a lot of this country depends on eventually unmooring an entire swath of people. Mm-hmm. There's a scene late in this film where uh our main character, uh, her name is Fern, uh, who's kind of playing a Francis McDormand type. I think most of the, uh, the characters are named after the actors who play them, uh, goes to her old home where she used to live and it's empty and there's no reason for it to be empty. Yeah. You could totally put a person there. The, yeah, there's nothing and, wrong with so it. this, this is a very understated, very real, very relatable drama, but at the same time, it's also this gigantic, uh, condemnation, of the way the American economic system is so eager to saw you off and just throw you to the wind. Yeah. If you're not in a position to participate. This is a movie that I respect Mm. so much. Um, Absolute respect from top to bottom. Everything about it works. And yet for some reason, and I've been really (laughs) struggling with this because Mm. I really can't figure out what it is. Hmm. There's something about it that just keeps it from being, you know, on my list of the best films of the year. There's something, mm. there's some disconnect I have. And I'm, I think it mm. might just be, and this is a purely, purely individual subjective thing. I might just be too depressed by it. <laughs> and that's not, and that's mm. the movie's doing its job. But here's mm. the thing. I don't like being depressed. I have, mm. you know, serious issues with depression. And there's something about the low key... I I can handle quiet desperation because there's an inherent drama in desperation, but the idea that people in this movie have just accepted this lot Hmm. and that's the way it is. And and are fighting tooth and nail to maintain some sort of dignity in in this, uh, in this lifestyle that is inherently like designed to rob it rob them of their dignity. It would be like if you're watching the grapes of wrath and the Jodes never got off the highway. Yeah. But more or less. And there's something about that, that again, it's just, it's potent. Mm. Uh, It's excellent. The grandson McDormand is fantastic. And again, if you, you, I think, was it you who said this was her greatest performance? Uh, I'm tempted to say it. it, It's at least up there. I mean, she has so many great ones. It's kind of hard to say for sure. But one of the great actors and I, I wouldn't fight that. Um, but and I, and I would recommend the hell out of this movie. In fact, I'll, I'll consider it a runner-up for me. Hmm. But um, yeah, there's something about it. I'm just, I just can't right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, thank you, Chloe Zhao. You yeah. really, you. I think you, 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 you did your job so well. Mm. I'm just sad. <laughs> but it's um, good. Yeah, it's I'm, really good. I respect it. 
Yeah, I, I can I can handle movie depression better than I can my own. So I I, I, I like reveling in a nice sad film, a nice, can, good sad story. It, it depends for me, and I'm not saying I don't like any movies that are sad. Some mm. of my favorite movies have a lot of sadness in them. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, The Big Sick came out, and mm. it was one of my favorite movies of that year, and I ugly cried three or four times because mm. it was just such a wrenching, beautiful story, and I thought mm. they did such a great job with it. Uh, but in the end, the the tears gave me some sense of catharsis, and this is not a cathartic movie in any way. Nomadland. Uh, there's, I don't think this is a cathartic film. I think there's no. A, there it's, might... it's not really going for that kind no. of punch. It yeah. just sort of. And it's, I'm not saying it needs g- to be Hollywood. G- gently washes like it's it's ambivalence and, over. And it. I'm not saying this movie needs to be Hollywood. I'm not mm. saying change a frame, mm. but it just the in the end the sadness is just there and it's never gonna leave me now. Mm. And a part of me is like, okay, <laughs> I'm not happy i'm but but what is yeah. but what are our lives if not a a desperate attempt to stay alive in an economic system that doesn't always work for us oh, absolutely. and maintain our dignity as best we can i think yeah. that's universally appealing and very relatable yes that's very very mm. fair that's very very fair mm. i guess um yeah i don't know i, I again i maybe i'll rewatch this and i'll mm be ready for it okay. and that might be just be the case but again this is not a critique of the film All right. this is a critique of me and where <laughs> i was when it was like it's like i said love and monsters was like a movie i guess i needed to see that day mm. nomadland not that day. <laughs> different day different day yeah. for me so that's that's totally fine but again incredible motion picture and i'm glad you put it on your list All right. um i'm gonna pick uh the film on my list which is probably the most subtle okay um a lot of the movies that are on my list are films that are, you know, interesting and exciting genre pictures or funny comedies or uh, really in your face political films. And this one is about neighbors who have quiet days. Uh-huh. Uh, this is Andrew Ahn's Driveways. Uh, Driveways is an incredibly beautiful motion picture. We just talked about it. I talked about it like towards the beginning of the year when it came out like in april or may and whitney talked about it on the most recent episode where he played catch up mm. uh, with some stuff that we hadn't seen and i asked him to see driveways for the end of the year and i'm glad you did um the movie stars hong chow as a woman who is uh traveling to her sister's house her sister is older they were estranged she hadn't talked to her in years but her sister has died and now she has to clean out the house. She has to take care of the business. Unfortunately, mm. she didn't know her sister was a hoarder, and this job is going to take a really long time. So now her and her young son, played by Lucas J, have to basically live here for a few weeks. And it's so full of just junk and rot that they have to like sleep on the porch. It's like their only option. Um, and they have a neighbor, uh, played by Brian Dennehy, this old widower, uh, who is just going about his days. He plays bingo. He reads the paper. That's it. Very quiet life. Mm-hmm. And over time, they just form this regard for one another, this casual relationship and he starts spending more time with this young boy who is having trouble connecting to any of the kids in this neighborhood and what they realize is that this kid is just 
not a little kid. He's a very old soul, and he's mm. very content to just be around older people and have quiet, relaxing times and connect to people emotionally rather than pretend we're wrestlers and fight in a basement. A scene that does not go well. Um, I'm, there was so much risk in that scene. I'm glad it ended the way it did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It could have been a lot <laughs> like, worse. Oh no. Yeah. This that could like have. Remember the the scene in uh, in Boyhood where he's like hanging out with the kids in the abandoned house and they're like flinging rotary saws at the wall. It's oh, like, yeah. oh, oh no, this is gonna get so contrived. Somebody's gonna fall on a saw or something. They're gonna have to go to a hospital. A kid is gonna die. Now, yeah. luckily. He makes it, like, it's a risky situation, but he makes it out okay. No, no, not everything is a cautionary tale. Sometimes Mm. people do risky, stupid things with their kids, and they get away with it, and it turns out okay, and they may, hopefully they realize how stupid that was and don't do it again. Uh, We we have cautionary tales for a reason. This isn't one of them. Uh, This is, well, I don't know. I think it's a cautionary tale about making sure we connect with people. Yeah. About making sure that we make the time to not just make assumptions about what other people are like, but really talk to them mm-hmm. and appreciate the young and the elderly alike and how unique that experience is. Because when we are, you know, in our twenties, thirties, forties, and we're going about our business and we're trying to take care of everything, we don't always have that time yeah. to be quiet and to only focus on one thing. It's something I struggle with constantly in a movie like driveways slows you down and reminds you about the importance of human connection. Yeah. And everyone in this movie is great. Hong Chow is great. That kid, Lucas J is, is a mm. revelation. Uh, Brian Dennehy, the late Brian Dennehy just passed away. I think this year, late last year. Uh, this is, I think this is his last performance. This is an incredibly great performance. We're we're lucky that he got to go out on one of his best. Yeah, uh, and he's known for a lot of really notable roles and all kinds of movies. I was a fan. I thought he was yeah. great ever since ever since I saw him in FX. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. one of my favorite genre films. I love that flick. <laughs> he's messy, but he's fun at parties. Uh, uh, that he was able to play such a I'm noticing a lot of uh, the uh, maybe love and monsters is the exception, but a lot of the films we've talked about so far are really, really understated. Yeah. And driveways is one of the most understated films. Not about host is understated, but it's, it's, it's low. It's it's low in ambition in some regards. It's true. It's, it's a low budget at the very least. Um, but uh, yeah, Brian Dennehy is able to give an understated performance. He is not, he, he does have a speech near the end. Oh, that's so good. That is, offers a, an emotional catharsis to the movie and a moment of connection, but it's more just that he has this outpouring in front of the person he does is significant. Yeah. That he's able to make this unexpected emotional connection with another human being. Uh, and yet there is still a divide, and there's something yeah. that they'll just won't understand about each other, and that has to be okay. I'll say this. Whoever designed... Like, did the actual production design for the interior of Brian Dennehy's, like, apartments in this movie? Got it spot on. Yeah. Like, the kinds of glasses he had, mm-hmm. the kinds of light switches he had, the sort of books he had around the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you're someone my age who sort of grew up in the tail end of things like Rolodexes and rotary phones, 
you know exactly what this film is getting at. Yeah. It had it was a perfect really good. grandpa house. Yeah. They got it just right. And again, that's that's not a denigration at all. That's No, uh, that, that's that's just that's yeah. just you know what? I didn't need, I never needed to replace those glasses. Mm. So they look old now. But they're great. <laughs> I'm not gonna replace them if I don't have to. What's oh. the point of that? I'm sure give give me another 20, 30 years. It's a lot of stuff in this in this apartment that will just not leave. Why? It works fine. <laughs> and it won't be the style anymore. And that's gonna have to be okay. Anyway, beautiful film. Let's yeah, move on. Yeah, I I put that on my runners up, but okay. it's again, that's it's in my top ten. Um well Speaking of understated, um, I'm going to go with Kelly Reichardt's First Cow, Aww. a film I've been talking about all year because I saw it earlier in the year and I dug it. I think it's the best cow film we had all year. Um, yes. And the first. I was trying to think of other cows <laughs> in films this year. I don't know. You know what? I'm going to. Well, you're talking about First Cow. I'm going to I'm going to like scour my list of films. <laughs> see if there's see like if other, there any... other notable. Was there cow a cow scenes? in Sonic the Hedgehog? I feel like there might have been a cow in Sonic the Hedgehog. Maybe because he's in that like small like farm town or whatever. Is there like a bit where he's hanging out with a cow? I don't think so. All right, not that I recall. All right, that's a stretch. It's a stretch. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, first cow is about the first cow in the Oregon Territory. It's about uh, a man who's who's a, a cook. His name is Cookie. He hangs out hangs around with good golly the worst ruffians, people who don't really care what they eat. Hmm. Uh, he is a gentle person. He runs into another man who is a little bit more vivacious, but also uh, needs to project gentleness because he's on the run from the law. Together, they come up with a scheme. The scheme is to steal milk. And that's their scheme. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, the first cow in the Oregon Territory is brought in to live on the estate of a, 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 a British aristocrat played by Toby Jones. And... Cookie, who really wants to uh, improve his baking, realizes they need dairy. And so at night, they sneak in, steal some milk, use it in the their recipes, and sell it back to the rich. It, this is a kind of, also like Nomadland. This is a good uh, economic metaphor for the way uh, money and economics and the trades of goods and the way the rich control certain things that the poor have to kind of essentially take back in order to have any wherewithal at all. Mm. Uh, it's a good metaphor for that. More than anything, it is about how this economic backbone is actually predicated on very gentle friendships. And the relationship between uh, the two men at the center of the movie points out that this this is not all based on greed and cruelty and ambition. Uh, this is like a, an antidote to a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which uh, a lot of his movies are about how these ambitious men who are almost who are incomplete emotionally are the ones who laid down the groundwork for all like uh, economic and social structures that we're currently living through today. Uh, there will be blood in the master in particular. Yeah. Uh, First cow likes to is pointing out contrarily. That a lot of the American spirit is based on friendship, passion, and gentleness. And good golly, if that's not an inspiring message to get to <laughs> in 2020. I think it's interesting that it also is, uh, it, it also argues that on some level, uh, 
the American economy is based on taking whatever you can from the rich and selling it back to them. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And th- and that's also kind of in- inspiring as well. They're, they're getting away with something and that's great. Yeah. And, no, it's a heist film. And that's something mm. that I, would, I was kind of unready for. I, I knew it was about taking milk mm. that didn't belong to you, but there's something very interesting about how this hits the heist movie beats without feeling contrived and actually feeling very uh, sweet and understated. Like the bit where, um, okay, we think he might be on to us. We should really just cut our losses and get out of here and he'll never know and they can never prove anything and everything will be fine. But if we make one more batch and I'm like, no, (laughs) it's like the one last heist. Never do that. Always (laughs) cut your losses. What are you doing? Just go, you fools. You fools! So it hits all those beats, and yet it's so doesn't feel like it's been built around like a spreadsheet of what a heist movie should be. Yeah, and it kind of yeah. reminds you that well, because it's the, not about the thrills, no. it's not about the tension at all. No, it's the idea that it, there is theft involved here is because of odd circumstance. You know, it's the beginning of the American West. There is only one cow, mm-hmm. uh, and economic disparity which is just very real you know there's only so much they can do here they don't set out to steal this milk to make money they set out to steal this milk because they wanted good food and they Mm. couldn't get it yeah and i think that uh is significant i can't find any uh, wait wild mountain time oh that had cows that had cows that had cows i got it i got it i got it so that second cow I was thinking maybe Doolittle had cows in it, but Don't, I didn't I don't think it did. Uh, the thing about Doolittle and Wild Mountain Time is that they're big pieces of crap. <laughs> First Cow is a great film. I actually, I actually don't dislike Wild Mountain Time. I do. I know, and you're and you're you're wrong to do that. Um, I, 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 I Doolittle. It's a big piece of crap. I don't want to. I don't. My, the the thing that frustrates me is that the thing I like about Wild Mountain Time is this ending mm. that everyone was talking about. I'm making fun of, and I'm just like, no, I think you're looking at that the wrong way. And I actually found it very sweet and inspiring in a way. So, mm. but it's a way I can only describe in detail why I really like that movie by ruining it. So I'm not just going <laughs> to dump it in the middle of this podcast. But mm. I, I kind of like that movie, and I'll right. defend that movie a little. The accents are atrocious. I will never pretend otherwise, but I think the heart's in the right place. Um, we, uh, I was watching it with my wife, Wild Mountain Time, and you yeah. know, it, it, there's all these people giving these really horrendous Irish accents. Uh, Christopher Walken cannot play an Irish man. No. And we knew John Hamm was going to show up later, and we really, really hoped that he would up Christopher Walken's game and give an even worse Irish accent. <laughs> but it turns but out he played, he's playing an American, so it's <laughs> too bad. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to think of where to go next. I'm trying to think of, like, is do I have a good segue? And I think I don't, so I'm just going to say The Invisible Man was great. The Invisible Man was great. Yeah, The Invisible Man is, is a movie that I think I would be talking about anyway. Mm. Um, even if the year had gone normally, um, it was one of the last big releases. It was the last movie to have like a proper opening weekend before people started avoiding theaters and then theaters shut down entirely. Yeah. Um, and it's a film from Lee Winnell, uh, who wrote and starred in the initial saw movie and has also been, uh, behind the insidious films. And 
at some point he went from quite good to great. And mm. I think it was right here because I saw like that Insidious film he directed and he was cutting his teeth on. And like, mm. it was okay. Yeah, like, Insidious chapter three. Third one. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's fine. But mm. it, I remember very little about it. Um, we got to interview him about that one mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Maybe a few times. He's, he's, he's a nice enough gentleman, but, um, I was like, I knew he had good ideas and I knew that James Wan was good at filming them. But I was like, I don't know if he's going to end up making a great horror movie on his own yet. And then I saw Invisible Man. I'm like, okay, he absolutely nailed this one. (laughs) So The Invisible Man is an incredibly loose retelling of the story of The Invisible Man. It takes the... H.G. Wells is not credited in this movie. No, which which is is, bullshit. Yeah. Which is absolute bullshit. He should at least get like an inspired by Mm -hmm. credit. Um but uh, the original story of the Invisible Man was about a mad scientist who uh, turned himself invisible, and the invisibility serum made him even madder, and uh, he ended up using his ability not to be seen to wreak havoc. Yeah. And the original James Whale movie is a classic, and the visual effects are still really impressive to this day, especially when you consider the very limited resources they had to make them. Some of the visual effects in that movie, you will be scratching your head wondering how the fuck they did that in the 1930s. <laughs> really good the new one actually very smartly understands what makes the idea of an invisible man scary because invisibility is as a power is so often treated as like a joke ha 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 i can like i can, I can spy I, I can, on people yeah, I can spy on people showering that's yeah which is yeah. which is gross you shouldn't do that mm. but like that's what it boils down well, but, to. It's know, just it, this immature power fantasy. Well, it's it's a it's a supervillain power. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's getting away with stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the basic mm. uh, uh, premise behind it. And so, oftentimes, the people who would be in an invisible story were actually doing villainous things, whether or not they realized they were doing it. Um, but whereas something like the Hollow Man was all about how someone who thought he was a moral person suddenly having the freedom to be immoral and getting corrupted by the experience took every opportunity. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really fucked up movie, actually. Um, Thanks, Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, well, didn't shy away from it, did he? But this one is about the idea of invisibility as someone who is getting away with things in plain sight and acknowledging that that exists without the superpower. Mm. So the movie is actually about a woman played by Elizabeth Moss, who is fantastic in this movie, um, who is in an incredibly abusive, controlling relationship with a scientist. Mm. Uh, he's a, he's a tech billionaire and he has been keeping her like in his house. And at the beginning of the movie, she finally gets the wherewithal to escape in the middle of the night. She finally is able to do it, but she is convinced that he's going to come get her. And she's very surprised, pleasantly so, to find out that he died. And he left her everything. And she is suspicious of this every step of the way. Because, like, in death, he's still finding a way to control her. That's that's not good. And so... People are, you know, she, she's she been through a lot. She's been through a lot of PTSD. And so when she is convinced that somehow her dead boyfriend is still watching her, everyone says, you're being paranoid. He's been gaslighting you for so long. You cannot believe that you are free of him. And under normal circumstances, that might be a somewhat rational response. Mm. However, 
to people experiencing trauma, that trauma is real. And in this movie, it's literally real. <laughs> um, this one really shook me. Yeah. Because it's really personal. The opening scene of Elizabeth Moss, who is excellent in this movie, by the way. She's excellent all the time. She was really great uh, in Shirley, a movie which didn't make my list, but what a great performance. Yeah, she, she's yeah. good in that movie. It's, yeah. Shirley tells the story of Shirley Jackson. She she plays Shirley Jackson, and but it's told from the perspective of these fictional characters they inserted mm-hmm. in their lives. That was a little weird. But, I, I liked um, it more than you did, but it didn't make my runners yeah. up. It's a great performance mm-hmm. in, a, in a mixed bag movie. Yeah. But the opening scenes of The Invisible Man is uh, the process she has to go through to sneak out of the house. And we understand what's going on immediately. Mm-hmm. That we don't see a, see his face, we don't hear any words from him, but through her reactions and how scared she is and all these precautions she had to take just to get a bag of stuff mm-hmm. and meet a car that would pick her up and take her away uh, just filled me with anxiety because... to reveal a little little bit of personal history i had a night like that once mm. and it was just really just to get away from a bad relationship and um I'm sorry. it 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 really hit it really hit hard and it yeah. didn't ha- it didn't help that i had uh at the screening that we saw i had a whole pot of caffeinated tea <laughs> so by the end i was just like you know clawing at the walls i was so paranoid no, i remember you this one yeah. really this one really hit you really hard yeah yeah um, so i had to kind of like sit with my head between my legs for a little bit yeah this it's a very observant movie and i think that's the thing that makes it work is that there is this fanciful element there's a guy who turns invisible in this movie mm. and they understand just how much to explain that. It just has to sound like it could work. Yeah. We don't, we don't need much more than that. Just well, like it the, needs to sound plausible and then we can move yeah, on. The line of dialogue is, oh, he was an expert in the field of optics and he has a lab and that's it. We don't need much more than that. It's yeah. fine. And there's like once we like actually start interacting more with the Invisible Man more as the film continues, you realize that like the way that the suit works is actually just like um, – it affects the way that the story is told and the way that action sequences are told. And, uh, but it's all really intuitive and they never get like hung up on it. Like we, mm. I'm so excited to tell you about the tech. That's the difference between this movie and something like tenant tenant is like, I am so excited to tell you about all the tech that we've invented. Uh-huh. And visible man is like, I am so excited to tell you this story about human beings and how this tech is a metaphor for that. Mm so much more impactful <laughs> isn't it just it's so fucking good there are some really amazing scares the sequence i'm not going to tell you any further in case you haven't seen it yet the sequence at a restaurant that scared the shit out of me <laughs> i was like oh my yeah. fucking god that's so fucking elegant and brilliant and how it was executed wow um it's a great motion picture. I think this is... I, I remember watching this thinking, I am watching a horror classic unfold. And it's one of those movies where it's so good, you actually mm. start getting worried that they're going to fuck it up. <laughs> like, it's so good. Please don't fuck up the ending yeah. or make some horrible, weird statement at mm. the end that's totally wrong. And No, I think they stick the landing. It's a mm. really just excellent horror movie from beginning to end. And I love it. I love it very, very much. Um, I don't have any really any real horror movies. In fact, I don't think I have any genre films I, I on my this, top ten list, I, uh, apart I, from Wireless, which is kind of a kind of a thriller. That's the last horror um, movie on my list. But I, I did 
Well, one maybe, I guess. I've, I've but got like, a lot of a lot of uh, horror movies like on in my runners up. Um, yeah, I thought it was a really great year for the genre. Actually, there's a lot mm-hmm. of incredible, and I still and honestly, and this is a movie I know everyone loved, but uh, I wasn't able to make the time to see Possessor, and I heard that one. Was oh, Possess- Possessor is yeah. really good too. Yeah, uh, it's it's gory to the point of being a little bit shameless about it. Yeah, it's not like artful gore. It's just like <laughs> oh, that's just good, good, strong gore you got there. I think the horror movie that came closest to making my top ten without actually making it was Amy Simetz's She Dies Tomorrow. Mm, that's on my runner's uh, up as well. Which I think is just an incredibly effective and very novel uh, horror movie about this like infectious idea mm. and sort of the dangers of not thinking of the future and mm. just assuming just that this is doom, this is the end. And, doom thoughts. Yeah, that oh, sort of thing. so good. Uh, really, really great movie. I guess the closest I come uh, to having a genre film on my list is the science fiction film Baccarat. Oh, I haven't uh, seen that one. Okay. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention Baccarat because I dug the heck out of Baccarat. This, this sort of film is my jam because it's so peculiar. It uh, takes place in a little town in Brazil. Uh, it's the near future but you wouldn't know it by looking at this little town. In fact, the way these people are filmed, they all seem very, very natural. They all seem very real. Uh, almost as if, uh, it, it's almost a documentary in, in certain, uh, certain shots and in certain regards. Uh, they're peculiar, but not in that infectious sort of quirky way. They're peculiar in a very natural sort of way. Okay. Um, over the course of the film, uh, this town begins to discover that, a, whenever they try to look up this the city they're in, Baccarat, it's not on any maps anymore, and they don't know why. One of the people, while they're driving home from a, a job outside of town, spots a flying saucer, like a Mars Attacks flying saucer. And we also start to see the this group of other people, led by Udo Kier, this sort of like group of mercenaries who are clearly there to do some sort of harm to the people of Baccarat, and we don't know why. Mm. Uh, it is this really bizarre, wonderfully off-putting, kind of magical realist Western. Sci- science fiction Western. Oh, one of those. Yeah. Okay, that, that old <laughs> well, saw. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a new genre, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it does it in a really creative sort of way. Okay, I've seen sci-fi westerns before, but they do it in sort of a pulpy sort of way. We just talked about The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Oblivion. Uh, Oblivion is one. Really, really uh, fun, uh, low-budget. Cow- Cowboys yeah. and Aliens. Uh, Oblivion Let, is the original Cowboys and Aliens. It, as, it is. As Full Moon Entertainment will happily stress on their boxes. That's actually, like, if you, ever, if you haven't seen those movies, I think, I think one or not both of them were written by Peter David, who wrote, like, a lot of uh, oh, yeah, comics. But... Mm. Um, it's uh, it's a sci-fi western in space, and it's just like a big cowboy town, and everyone in there is like an alien, and yeah. it's actually pretty good. <laughs> it's yeah. mostly forgotten now, which is a damn shame. But like, it's just one of those ones where it's like they spent the money, they knew to spend the money on makeup, mm-hmm. and they knew to get a decent script. Yeah, and they got away with it. Holy there's shit. N- nothing sensationalist about Baccarat. It doesn't yeah. feel like a genre picture. It feels like uh, you're watching a, a kind of naturalist small town drama where this, these weird genre things start happening. Uh, and good golly, is it exciting and embracing and unique? Mm. And that, and that's going to get, uh, going to get you noticed in, uh, uh, in any year. Well, again, again, we, I was, we were just talking about the, Oh wait, actually <laughs> I'm saying there might've been an episode that hasn't aired yet, but we were just talking about, um, kind of the importance of making something, you want to see 
Yeah. It's not about trying to make something everyone else is making and prove that you can do it efficiently. If you want to get an impact, if you want to get, if you want to get noticed, even if you want to be mercenary about it, but if you want to really connect with people, tell the story you've always wanted to see. And if that's weird, great, go for it. Seriously. What if you only ever get to make one movie, make the movie. I have a lot of affection in my heart for people who make a big swing, mm. whether or not it connects. Like, it, 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 no one can pretend you didn't mm. try. So I've I've been meaning to see this one. You've talked this yeah, one up so much, and unfortunately, if anyone's been following me on social media, I don't want to get into it because it's very depressing. Um, this has been a very rough week. Yeah, uh, yeah, the last week, week and a half has actually completely pulled the rug out from under us like three times. Um, so I wasn't able to see some of the movies that I wanted to see and catch up on between our catch up episode and this one. And you talked so <laughs> much. What's the opposite of sma- of talking smack? Love. Just talking you talked love. love. <laughs> talking up. You talked. You talked this movie up so right. much, and I really wanted to see it. Yeah. And I, it sounds like something I'll enjoy. Yeah, but yeah. I did not. I did not get a chance to get to it. Um. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Oof, we're we're winding down. Um. I one two. Again, I, I think I only have four left here. But yeah. Yeah. I have, I have five. So uh, I am going to go with. Oh, whatever. Let's just talk about a really, really, really incredible comedy that is not only funny but mm. really observant and I I I think I think significant. Mm-hmm. Um, the forty-year-old version. Oh, this is on my list too. <laughs> this is a okay. little, little bit of overlap we finally have here. All um, right, we've had we've had two so far: yeah. the forty-year-old version and uh, the vast of night. Uh, the forty-year-old version is uh, written, directed, and uh, by and starring Rada Blank, who plays in the film uh, a playwright in New York City, who had some success in her career. 10 years ago or so. And now she's turning 40 and she hasn't put on like a major show in a long, long time. Her career is stagnated. She's teaching a group of kids who don't really seem to appreciate her. Some do maybe a little too much, but, but the, re- the rest of them are just, but clearly her heart isn't in it either. No, she's, no, no. she's she, just sort of going through the, motions. she's going through midlife crisis. She, yeah. she hasn't achieved what she wanted to achieve. And she's debating whether to continue down this path and make a lot of compromises in order to achieve what she thought she wanted or to just throw everything in the bin and start over and become uh, a hip hop artist who writes about and raps about, uh, issues that she isn't seeing other hip hop artists talk about. Issues like turning forty. Issues like uh, the seeming demand in the entertainment industry for art by people of color to represent or resemble poverty porn. Yeah, you know, as, as though art, it must be inherently condescending. Art by people of color, as dictated by wealthy white people. Yeah, how do we make this accessible to wealthy white people, mm-hmm. and how much of a incredible artistic compromise is that? And all of a sudden, she's making art for herself again, and. The songs are great. They're funny. Oh yeah. They're they're incisive. Uh, but and and the the journey of her play from something that is earnest and mm. an attempt to speak about uh, issues of color and issues of gentrification 
uh, in New York in an intelligent way and how it gets increasingly rewritten over and over again until it doesn't resemble anything even remotely real. Hmm. Um, these are fascinating dual journeys yeah. and how one journey is like guaranteed basically at this point to bring her financial success, but at the cost of her artistic soul yeah. and uh, one no. journey is might not get her there, but she will at least like who she is. Uh, your description, however, doesn't communicate how funny this movie is. No, it does not. Uh, how how actually light and enervating a film it is. How uh, bright and brisk the photography is. It's mm-hmm. shot mostly in black and white. And uh, it makes uh, New York feel like a lived-in alive place rather than that kind of artificial version we see in movies so often. Yeah, either artificially like way mm. too nice or artificially way too scuzzy. Yeah, like if you've ever yeah. just walked around New York for a while and taken a couple of random turns, you know that it's a really interesting lived-in city. And some filmmakers are really good at capturing it. I was reminded of Abel Ferrara. Yeah, in terms, and yeah. who makes very different kinds of movies. But they both captured like a New York that feels like it was captured by someone who wanted the audience to feel like they lived there, not like they were trying to figure out some kind of travel log. Yeah. And that's really important, I think. And and yet it's not flashy. It's not showy. It's not like uh uh it's not trying to impress. It's trying to put you into this story. And this story is told by someone with wit. This story is told by someone with a sense of humor. Mm. There's there's so many great little subversive uh, 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 plays on the fourth wall or uh, what our expectations are of this kind of movie and I'm not going to ruin them for you but they made me fucking cackle <laughs> with glee at the, at the absolute this is this is one of the best screenplays of the year yeah I really do think it is I think this is the kind of witty funny lived in every single character feels real even if they're kind of a cartoon because some people are like that mm. and we we need more of this we need more of rada blank clearly this she's, she's clearly <laughs> incredibly talented but uh we need more people i think speaking from this place and yeah. i really really connected to this movie and I want to thank everybody. I missed this movie the opening week, and then we had to move on and watch other movies. And I want to thank everybody who poked me, say, hey, make sure you see 40-Year-Old Version, because thank you, this movie <laughs> is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real treat. Uh, speaking of brilliant, uh, I I know you and I both really like this film. Uh, this was a Christmas release, and uh, it's Promising Young Woman. Also on my uh, list. Okay, good. Uh, I'm glad. Uh, Promising Young Woman... Uh, is confrontational in the best possible way. Uh, it's about a, a young woman. She's uh, She works as a barista, and she has a very peculiar M.O. She's played by Carrie Mulligan. Uh, she goes to bars uh, and poses as somebody who's had a one too many. Yeah. Uh, and in so doing, she uh, attracts the attention of somebody who wants to help her, usually a young man. Almost invariably, these young men take her back to their place and they try to put the moves on her, even though she's close to being blackout drunk. It is then that she reveals she is not blackout drunk, calls them on it, mm-hmm. shames them for it because, God damn it, yes. Yeah, and, you deserve that and more. And uh, is wielding that as a weapon, trying to 
aggressively change the culture by confronting these people with without necessarily uh, putting herself in genuine harm's way. Mm-hmm. Or harming them. No, it's not or, like a yeah. serial killer thing. Yeah. She's not like, she doesn't like, and then I'm going to kill you, which would have been so easy. Mm. No, it's, it's not about that. Because it's, it's, this, this is a film about uh, vengeance. Yes. But it's not that kind of movie fantasy vengeance. This is actually a more of a moral vengeance. Well, it's, it's about getting a, a righteousness back in the conversation. Well, it's because, because if you, if you, again, I, I think there's a lot of perfectly good stories to be told with different kinds of vengeance in them. Mm. But what's amazing about Promising Young Woman is that it is a story about vengeance. It is a story about uh, uh, someone who in other movies would be considered almost like a superhero. Mm. Um, but what well, she com- is attempting... Com- compared this to uh, Girl in the Spider's Web. I guess so, yeah. yeah. Um, but what she's attempting to do isn't to just hurt people. What she's trying to do is confront them with their shit and mm. make them realize what they're doing and hopefully change, you know, and actually make sure people aren't just being punished for what they do, but make sure they're actually being forced to admit to what they do Yeah, and acknowledge the hurt that they cause. And that's, ex- that's, that's really something that's missing, I think, from a lot of other vigilante stories of any stripe. The idea that we actually, what, what's the real impact that we're making here? And over the course of Promising Woman, you actually see that there might actually be an impact being made. And on top of it all, this is an incredible performance from Carrie Mulligan in particular. Mm. Um, she's doing this for reasons which are revealed in the film. And you realize that this is a film that is very, very much, it's not just about vengeance. It's also about, uh, it's also about mourning and loss mm. and she's she's really wrestling with a lot and she is trying to turn her pain into something that is righteous is a good word but also productive and actually has an impact and actually changes Mm. things hopefully for the better um this is a movie that is viciously written vicious like absolutely every single line uh... feels perfect it's that viciousness that I think is its most admirable quality. Yeah. It's it's edge. It's willing to stab and stab yeah. deep. And manages it manages to pull no punches while not being, again Salacious. Well not being salacious yeah. or without even being especially violent. Mm. And that's something that's really, really impressive. This is a movie about uh uh vicious ideas. Um uh, and the viciousness of a very uh, masculine predatory society in which mm-hmm. we live and the way that people adapt to live in that and the way that people begin to exploit that and on top of it all fantastically filmed the costume mm-hmm. production design is astounding uh, the musical choices every needle <laughs> drop is perfect Every um. the way that they drop Britney Spears toxic just chef's fucking kiss. <laughs> so fucking good. And the, and the uh, Paris Hilton single. Yeah, I, it's just so brilliant. And uh, and the I, I, without getting into it, the ending of the movie was such a daring swing. 
Yeah. Such I really I, I, didn't I think we would. I, I did not I feel like there's a lot there. I can't talk about just because no. of the way, the places this no. this film goes. But but I will say this. I I saw where it was going and I was fine with it. And then when it went the direction it ended up going in, mm. I was like what are we doing? <laughs> and then when we found out what we were doing, I was like, wow, that was a bold, risky narrative choice that might not have worked. But it's satisfying. It's so satisfying. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it shifts the perspective in a way that is just so evil to do. <laughs> it's such a, we're just witnessing this wickedness and oh, it's so good. Um, this is a movie that I think is, I, I don't think it's going to lose its power anytime soon. I think this is going to be just as gut punching Yeah. Um, yeah. every time I see it and every, every, as it keeps getting uh, a bigger and bigger audience over time. I think mm. this is a really significant film. Um, it, you know, it has this kind of almost grindhouse appeal to it without ever feeling exploitative well, at all it's so <laughs> just righteous vengeance it's righteous vengeance yeah. in movie form the, this this is it's it's um it's a gr- i don't want to call it a grindhouse film because grindhouse films well, it's tend it has this, to has this appeal because well, it's about vengeance and yeah, that's all i meant well what i'm the point i'm about to make here is that a lot of grindhouse films tend to uh Stress, celebrate or at least stress the masculine. Exactly. It's about machismo. It's about uh, physical strength. It's about doing violence. It's exploiting um, what the, they think their predominantly male audience wants. Yeah, to these see. are male filmmakers yeah. making films for a male audience, and and, mostly, uh, yeah. and usually starring men doing guy stuff. Yeah. This is the. This does. This right? doesn't. Yeah. This doesn't have any of that quality. This yeah. is not trying to cater to a traditional masculine revenge fantasy yeah. that is like lousy with violence. This is about outrage yeah. and very real outrage and very well-deserved outrage. And yeah. some, and that's how that is turned into a weapon against the society that we live in and a lot of the audience. And if you're a guy and you're watching this and you're uncomfortable, good. Yeah. You fucking should <laughs> it's, be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and are you and being you... targeted? Yeah. Yeah, you are. The, the there's a decent guy in this movie or is he is or is or is there or is there such a thing mm-hmm. as yeah, a yeah. decent guy in a society mm-hmm. in which uh uh you can get away with anything yeah you know that's uh, that's the question because again if you're not even if even if you're not doing anything mm-hmm. you still live in a world in which that's considered acceptable behavior to some and what are you doing about it mm-hmm. and that's a really important finger to point in that mm-hmm. when I say grindhouse, I just meant the log line sounds like it could be salacious. Yeah. And yeah. it's not, that's like, that's, that's all I meant. Like it yeah. sounds like on the surface, like the IMDB description or mm-hmm. something might make this sound like it's supposed to be something that's a good time or some bullshit. And it's not, but it is a great time. It is an important motion picture. I think to, to see witness think about, and it is entertaining on top of that. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. It's actually funny. Like, I know we're making it sound so severe because it is, but it's it's made with a sense of humor. There's a mm-hmm. very uh, a wicked, uh, uh, bleak sense of humor to this movie that is so earned at every 
step of the way that you, you can't like you can't help but get swept up in it. It's just mm. such a wonderful motion picture, and I again, this is a movie that that's going to be very difficult for a lot of people. I think it's mm. going to be very triggering to some people, and uh, and understood. Mm. But I think it's also a very important motion picture, and I do highly mm. recommend it if you think you can handle it. Um, I have three left. How many do you? Have? Uh, let's see. I uh, did that one. That one. That one. That one. That one. Oh, no, I, I just have two left. Okay, actually. I'll take the next one then. Right. Uh, I'm going to talk about a really, 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 really great animated film in a year without a lot of truly great animated films, I felt. Hmm. It's a couple of good ones. Let's see, I, I didn't see too many. Um, I'm not sure how much something like Sonic the Hedgehog counts. Uh, but, some, so, but I saw yeah. I saw two Pixar films this year. That's uh, true. I wasn't super impressed with either of the Pixar films. They're both I, sweet. I liked I liked Onward more than I liked Soul. They're, they're both sweet. I, I don't mm. dislike either of them. I think Soul uh, starts strong and then just ends up feeling you know a little less ambitious over time. Like gradually, just yeah. kind of. Uh, turns into something a little bit more oh, familiar, um, but I did like that Sean the Sheep movie. That's a sweet film. <laughs> was, I like the original better, but that, that yeah. was a really, really good one too. Uh, no, this is this is uh, a truly gorgeously animated fantasy epic called Wolf Walkers, hmm. and Wolf Walkers is my shit. <laughs> I, I, I watched this before you and I knew you would fall in love with this movie. I absolutely I kind of insisted you watch this. No, no, I, I was going to. I actually didn't realize it was coming out. I thought oh, it was right. coming out later. In fact, it was. Mm. It had like an early run like in like very small theaters and that's when I think we initially reviewed it and then it ended up going to Apple TV Plus right. uh, later. And this is the kind of, this movie is so good. I want to encourage people to like get the free trial watch this movie and then feel free to just unsubscribe. Mm. Just make sure you see this film. It is so fucking good. It's directed by Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. Uh, Tom Moore, you probably know from the animated films, the secret of Kells and song of the sea. Uh, he tends to make animated films about uh, Irish folklore. And this one I think is, I think it's his masterpiece. So far. And, and with all credit going mm. to Ross Stewart as well. Um, it is about a small town uh, in on the outskirts of the woods, and the woods are filled with wolves. And like a lot of small town folk, wolves are being demonized, even though in actuality wolves aren't that dangerous. But um, it's a story of a young girl whose father is responsible for hunting the wolves. She thinks she could be the greatest wolf hunter ever. She loves and idolizes her father. And when she ventures off into the woods, she ends up getting caught in a wolf trap. And who should rescue her but a wolf person? <laughs> a wolf walker. Someone who is, during the day when they were awake, a person. And when they fall asleep, uh, they, they their bodies are still there, sleeping. But they project into a wolf. And they live in nature. And they have uh, incredible, wonderful adventures. And then humans try to murder them because we're dicks. And... It seems like a pretty straightforward family movie premise. Mm. I became the thing I feared. I realized that it's beautiful. And now I need to stand up mm. and prevent these horrors from continuing. It's the uh, same, continuing. same story as Brother Bear. Sure. Yeah. A, a movie I also quite like, actually. Brother mm. Bear is not a bad film. Um, but Wolf Walkers, I think, nails it. I think it just understands exactly how to tell this story. First off, one of the best looking animated movies I've seen in years. Just absolutely 
gorgeously realized. The character designs are impeccable. The worlds that they inhabit are uh, lush, and they know how to like sort of crush space so it looks like they're uh, occupying like a two D plane that still is full of vastness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the but the real thing is though is that the emotional core of this movie is very pure, mm-hmm. and. Every single shot, it feels like it was absolutely perfectly crafted to convey the exact emotion and intellectual idea and story element that we are about to watch. To the extent that I was like digging my fingers into my chair. I was so riveted by the big climax because the thing with a movie, even if it's even a movie in a genre that's somewhat familiar, Mm -hmm. um, we have to think to ourselves, okay, I know in my heart of hearts where this is going, more or less. Yeah. But I have no idea how it's going to get there because everything is so fucking bad. The The religious fervor of this movie, and this mm-hmm. is something that I, I wasn't even thinking about until I started talking about it just now, um, reminds me very, very much of some of the stuff we've witnessed very recently in American politics. Um the ability to whip people up into a riotous frenzy mm. using rhetoric, using hate, using scapegoating mm. um, is something that is sadly something I know. I don't know if we're, how we ever get rid of it mm. because it's a powerful weapon. And this movie understands that it understands just how futile it can feel mm. to be facing off against that much ignorance and hate. Mm. And also, there are fun wolves, <laughs> and the wolves are really fun. And I want to be a wolf. I want to be one of these wolves and hang out with these wolves and have fun with them. the characters. Are so much fun. They're so delightful and funny and sweet. And again, just and then once the plot kicks in, it kicks in so hard mm-hmm. and so powerfully that there was while I was watching this movie, there was nothing else I cared about other than seeing how this shook out. All right. That's incredible to me. It's okay. It's not on my runner's up. Fuck off. <laughs> it's okay. I love you very, uh, very much, but I don't understand why I, you, I, I, you don't understand you at all. I, I thought the uh, the protagonist was a little bit too much of a wilting flower, and I feel like this is uh, one of Tom Moore's less ambitious projects. Wow. I appreciated the visual style. I really like that we got to see every little scratch of drawing mm-hmm. uh, to the point where I even got to see some of like the pencil sketches underneath the painting. I like the sort of two and a half D effect where sometimes we were looking at sort of like a 3D diorama scene. Sometimes we we're just looking at a flat image with other flat images on top of it, like an illuminated manuscript. It looked really, really lovely. Yeah. Something they did with great effect in something like The Secret of Kells. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of like plotting, this felt like a Disney film to me mm. and, uh, and all of the, the blandness that comes along with that, the, the way, uh, every one of the story beats was really predictable. And you're talking about how exciting the climax was. That's when I started to tune out oh, no. was when all of the violence started. It's like, Oh, let's, you're not going to do something creative now. You're just going to do well, an action climax. I don't think and it's about being creative. Not I think it's really about interesting. Being, I think it's about being true to what an angry mob is. Yeah. It's been, it's the same angry mob we've seen in numerous Disney films. And it's I not, think it's, and I think it's, it's, it's done better or interesting. And I right. think it's done better here. I disagree right. with that. I also disagree. The protagonist is a wilting flower. I think what she has to deal with over the course of the film mm. is the idea that her father has sadly and she comes to realize that this is a part of growing up as a person is the idea that we have conformity is safety 
in an oppressive and conservative yeah. society. And so she has a choice of conforming to standards, morals, lifestyles that she hmm. actively hates or hurting people. Like the people she loves will be hurt hmm. if she doesn't fall in line. And I don't think that's a wilting flower. I think that is a harrowing potential sacrifice that she has to decide whether or not she's going to work with. So I don't think that's hmm. a wilting flower. Hmm. I disagree yeah. with that. But um, in any case, I liked it more than you did. And I'm going to just take the next one mm. because I know if you disagree with me on Wolf Walkers, you're really going to hate me for picking Birds of Prey. <laughs> Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey. <laughs> uh, Birds of Prey is, and I know, I, mm. I, I, I don't understand the standard to which you hold this movie to. It seems so unreasonable <laughs> to me. Uh, Birds it's, of Prey. It's a, it's a crazy film that's not crazy. That's my it's problem. It's not crazy <laughs> enough for you mm. and I don't care about that. <laughs> I care that it's crazy enough for me. All right. uh, Birds of Prey is, of course, uh, the DC superhero movie, super villain movie, I guess, more accurately, uh, about Harley Quinn. Mm. Uh, she is the Joker's uh, partner, girlfriend, sidekick, uh, whoever you want to call it. And in this film, at the beginning of the film, rather in the opening credits, uh, the Joker kicks her out, breaks up with her, and it is about her uh, finding herself in a world that has previously defined her only by that other guy. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, it is about a bunch of other women who are uh, finding themselves in a situation where they have been defined by other mostly abusive men, either within the workforce and the Gotham City Police Department or uh, in their various jobs or by the men who have abused them and killed their families. And over the course of the film, they all manage to uh, in their own inimitable fashions, uh, find a way to come into their own power. It's a good kind of power fantasy. It's the kind of power fantasy that I don't think we see enough of where the people who actually acquire the power and have the power in the film are the ones who deserve it. <laughs> uh, and uh, they also kick a lot of fucking ass. And I love a good action movie. And that's something that a lot of studios didn't bother putting out this year. Because a lot of those big blockbusters that we were mm. waiting for, those were the action movies that they were going to put out. Yeah. So I don't think we had a lot of truly great action movies this year. I think we had a couple that tried. Again, Extraction, great action, bad mm. movie. We had, uh, did you see The Old Guard? That was a pretty good action movie. It was movie. okay, but yeah. I actually thought the overall story was just really just kind of clunky. It's another one that got kind of so caught up in its mythology that I thought the characters got the short shrift. But the action uh, I, was I cool. Think, I think Charlize Theron kind of communicated a lot of that she carries it well she carries yeah. I, I didn't dislike it but it for it didn't work for me really it's it's okay though i like right. it um here's one where the action it, it just fucking rips um inventive uh uh choreography uh really good use of each character sort of killing in their own inimitable fashions i said that expression before but i love saying it because daffy said it once um <laughs> i always say it the way he did it, in my own inimitable fashion inimitable fashion um but uh so the action is just it's, it's from it's, uh, robin hood daffy no actually it's, it's from, from duck amuck it's when he, oh, it's, you're it's right. when he gives yeah, up yeah. and is about to just dance oh yeah it's like forget listen listen you go your way i'll go my way live and let live ladies and gentlemen we apologize for the delay. I will now attempt to entertain you in my own inimitable fashion. Inimitable fashion, yeah. He just sort of tap dances. Um, that was a sidetrack. 
Um, See Duck Amok. It's one of the best movies ever made. It is, actually. Just <laughs> flat out 100% true. Um, but uh, but where, where was it going? So the, anyway, so just as a connoisseur of, of the action genre, which mm-hmm. I, I love the action genre. A great action movie can be the greatest thing in the world. Wonderful action choreography, excellent attention to geography, great stunt crew, inventive uh, uh, stunt work, and just interestingly filmed. I love the way that Kathy Yan films this movie as though, and they don't even hide it sometimes, it's downtown L.A. <laughs> it looks like downtown L.A. It's an L.A. movie. Yeah. It's Gotham City, but like, you know, when Tim Burton did Gotham City, he created a German expressionistic hellscape. When Christopher Nolan did Gotham City... It was Chicago. It was yeah. Chicago. And when Kathy Yan did it, it's L.A. And there's something that's really cool about seeing an L.A. superhero movie, because it feels like L.A. Everything about it feels that kind of like really just spread out mm. that kind of lackadaisical it's just it's a it's a place well, made for kooks here here's uh i've watched this movie twice mm-hmm. and uh the, I, the second time i watched it, i realized like a lot of it went through my brain without hitting it like there are okay. scenes i'd completely forgotten about even like in the the two months since the the first time i had seen it this is a stoner movie. Oh, absolutely. This, yeah, this, this great is a great stoner movie. And as such, it has a, a kind of, you're praising its loose, lax uh, qualities. Mm-hmm. That's something that makes it feel like it's not very focused. It makes, yeah. it, it, makes it feel kind of uh, uh, hazy and not, not very well put together. I disagree with that the, last the, part. The I agree action, it's hazy, the, and I think that's a, I think that's a point. The, the action scenes move a little slowly. The plot doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. The characters don't really sense. are facing in any kind it of particular sense, direction. But it's, it's, here's the deal. It's just told mm. from the perspective. I mean, we see other people's stories, but it's told from the perspective of Harley Quinn. Mm. Harley Quinn is not a focused narrator. No, that's what it. That's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a story that is being. It, it, it's actually uh, not unlike the movie Smiley Face, in mm. a lot of ways. And then you're right; it does feel like a stoner movie. She only gets high once, and it's by accident. But she gets, she gets like a well, she, cl- she, she gets a get cloud high. of cocaine. Yeah, I was gonna say she she doesn't get high on weed. She gets like a big snoot full of cocaine and once. Yeah, she she's hiding in a in a police evidence locker, and a bunch of people are shooting at her, and she hides behind this big comically large pile of cocaine, and the bullet hits the cocaine, and the cocaine puffs up. Mm in like a big cloud and then she like suddenly perks up like Popeye and she just starts and that's a scene I didn't expect to see in a superhero movie this year and I love that scene um I love the ensemble cast I think everyone's really really funny but I actually think you 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 kind of hit the nail on the head hmm. this is a superhero movie for stoners and that's something we haven't really had so many superhero <laughs> but, movies but is, are, that, is that something we want is yeah. that a good thing yeah okay yeah, actually I'm saying it is right. I'm saying it is right now I like that we have a superhero movie, that we have a movie that is this kind of over-the-top, larger-than-life action characters that exists in a shabby world. I like there's, mm. a, there's a movie that isn't about the efficiency of laying out a storyline, and it is about the characters rambling, being up in their own ideas and headspace and business. Mm. I like that it is a film about being freewheeling rather than being part of this incredibly conformist idea we have about what a modern superhero is. Now, I know you said it doesn't go crazy enough for you, but I think it's a different kind of crazy than what you're looking for. And I love that kind of crazy. I love this kind of uh, almost laid back ultraviolence 
that they have created here. And well, that, that is that, that's that's, what frustra- that's what frustrates me. I want it to be laid back. If it was just a hangout movie, uh-huh. that'd been great. Yeah. And and like a guy comes into the shop and they break his knees just for the fun of it, and then they go off and just like have some sushi and not okay. pay. You know, whatever. Yeah. If it felt like a little bit more punk, then I would have enjoyed it more. Mm-hmm. Uh but they, we don't have that sort of like hangout punk movie. They're sort of torn between that oh, and a, like a little bit more of a, a slick well, studio action. There, 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 there. Are, like Harley Quinn would very much like to spend this entire movie mm. hanging out in her apartment, mm. sucking down cheese whiz and watching cartoons. See, that's mm. not the option that she has in attempting to extricate herself from a relationship with the Joker, a, jo- a relationship which has defined her and deprotected her from a lot of other people and let her get away with a lot of shit because everyone was scared of the Joker mm. when they didn't realize they should be scared of fucking her. So when she extricates herself from that very, very publicly, now everyone realizes, oh, Harley Quinn is only is all by herself. Well, surely we can kill her because she's been pissing us off and there's all these comical asides where just random people show up trying to kill her and we realize mm. what she did to them. Yeah. And... So basically, it's just this movie where like literally everyone's after her. Mm. Um, she'd rather not. That's not what she's about. She wants to be relaxed and chill. She just wants to. She wants to play roller derby. She wants to get drunk. She doesn't give a shit. <laughs> she's just this little uh, spirit of anarchy, and yeah, violence. <laughs> And yeah, she's done horrible things to people, oh, it's, but it's, most of them kind of deserved it, didn't they? <laughs> it, it's not the fact that she's a super villain or that she does violence or you know, or or that she's an anarchic spirit. But I, if we're going to make a movie about an anarchic spirit, give me anarchy. Don't yeah. give me this. Don't give me anarchists are people too, and they have downtime. Well. Then why are we following an anarchist in the downtime? That's not an interesting time. Is I that thought the most it was interesting really time interesting. In I All thought right. it was really interesting. Right. We're not going to see eye to eye on this no, one, and that and upsets me because I love this movie. And, and, and you, you actually and I made care me very doubt, little about it. You actually made me doubt myself when I saw mm. this movie, and I loved it. Opening mm. night had the best possible time, and then I talked to you about it, and you just didn't see it. And then I talked to you about a couple more times about the year, and mm. you didn't see it. And I finally thought to myself, man. Was I was was I high? Like what did I what, what happened that I that I'm on this wavelength with this movie and Whitney, who I thought would be all all and really appreciative of this film. This is my kind of movie. It's it, yeah. it's about a, a punk rock clown woman with a mallet who yeah. beats men in the face. I want to see that movie exactly. So I I was make really, a good version of it. I was very very surprised. And so actually, like before we did this, I was like, I'm putting Birds of Prey on my list, but you know what? I haven't seen it since it came out. I am going to watch it again. I watched it tonight. <laughs> Holds up like a motherfucker. I love this movie. I'm so I'm sorry. This is this is my this isn't my number two. Hmm. But if this were ranked, this would be in my top five. I love this okay. movie. And I love this movie's spirit. Um, What's your number two? I, I I dispose of it. It's not one of the worst films of the year, but I think nothing of it. It's okay. it's not an interesting film. I disagree entirely. <laughs> and, and I know I'm, I'm on the, the losing edge of that. I know no, a lot of people there's really a lot, love this There's one. a lot of people who didn't like it. Hmm. I don't like a lot of the people who didn't like it because a lot of people like it for shitty reasons. Or a lot of people don't like it for shitty reasons. Sorry. Hmm. A lot of people don't like it for reasons which just reek of veiled sexism. And I know that's not where you're oh, coming no, from. No, definitely. I know that's not where you're coming from yeah, at all. No. I know. Uh, I, there's, but, you you know who I am. Come on. I know. Um, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm defending you right now. I just want to make sure that people understand that Whitney is in this... Whitney is looking at this from perspective of he just wants more insanity. He wants more crazy feminism. Mm. He wants more everything. And the good yeah. way, I mean, 
uh, you want more of that. This yeah. isn't like you denying it because oh they weren't fair enough to the original version of the, oh, no, of the I, Cassandra Kane Batgirl. I don't. I don't care. Bullshit. I don't, That's not don't care about at. any of that. No. I, I, I want more. Frankly, I just want more scenes of her like putting her foot on a guy's chest and like malleting his testicles up into his throat. Well, we have a few of that, man. Yeah, but I want. I want. I want the movie to be walls to wall that. Okay. And I didn't get it. I just feel like that's a weirdly high standard, but okay. (laughs) Well, but you you got it. I'm a critic. I'm allowed to have those standards. And if it disappointed me, I say that. Okay, fine. It wasn't R-rated enough. It needed to be more. I needed more of everything that was in there. Pretty R-rated. I got a third of everything I wanted, and that was just disappointing. I just think that's a lot to ask for. Jesus Christ, this movie gives so much and asks so little in return. All right. Maybe I wasn't high. I don't get high. Anyway. Uh, okay, you got two left. What's your number right, two? Well, let's take a really hard left turn. Um, this is one of my favorite films of the year. It's It was nearly my number one, uh, so I'm mentioning it second to last, but it is Bora Kim's film, House of Hummingbird. Oh, okay. Um, House of Hummingbird. For some I thought this was going to be your number one. Uh, I, I made a last minute readjustment. But, okay. So uh, House of Hummingbird, I've been saying, is my favorite film. It kind of is my favorite film of the year. Just uh, there's something else that that surpasses it. Um, House of Hummingbird, uh, directed by Bora Kim, is a, uh, takes place in Korea in 1994, and it's a coming of age story yeah. about a teenage girl who has essentially been dismissed by everybody in her life. Her teachers have written her off as a troublemaker, even though uh, she just isn't really interested in the in their teaching style. And it's really really strict. This is South Korea. And she goes home and her parents have also kind of written her off as sort of a daydreamer. She does badly in school. She has an older brother who physically abuses her and never pays any consequences for it because they're all so demanding about what the importance of school and the importance of education without ever really looking at her and finding out what her talents are. And it turns out she's a very talented artist. Hmm. And there are so, she has such a rich inner emotional life that is full bore, like running it at a 10 at all times and nobody ever sees her. And I think this is captures something really universal and really important about adolescence and about how your passions, the things you live for can isolate you and how the world around you can seem really repressive because it's difficult to communicate at that age just what your passions are and how you intend to move forward with them. And there's a really heartbreaking sequence of events where uh, she has to go to uh, after school classes because she's not doing well in class. And her calligraphy teacher is the only person who has ever really sort of seen her as a human being. And it's about cracking open all of these facades of oppression and what the world expects of you and learning to fall in love with who you are and who your inner passions are. It is such a beautifully honest, true, heartbreaking movie that I I could, even though this is about a a teenage girl growing up in Korea in 1994, I was there. I could feel it. I was in her shoes. And that's no small feat where I could understand and relate to every single shred of her experience i don't know man i just wanted it to be more honest and true and heartbreaking i just <laughs> stop giving me shit about birds of prey <laughs> 
I didn't see this God. movie. I didn't see this movie. You love this movie with every. I, I, I adore this movie. I had. I adore Birds of Prey. Yeah. And went, there you go. But anyway, uh, obviously they couldn't be more different. Um, mm. This movie sounds absolutely incredible. Mm. You have been talking up this movie pretty much nonstop since it came well, out, and, and I feel like I have to because nobody else is talking about no, this. No, this movie. is absent from the conversation. Yeah, like uh, I'm, I'm looking at all these, like, like, all these I, critics lists are coming yeah. out at the end of the year, and all these top ten lists are coming out. I didn't out. get a screening no, for yeah, this. Stuff like, like, like stuff like Nomadland is like, coming at, up on a lot of lists. Of, you and I are you and I are mm-hmm. in critics groups, and at the mm-hmm. end of the year, we're very fortunate in those critics groups that a lot of uh, studios, publicity departments, they will send us like screeners, or in the case of this year, mostly links to various films that they think would would interest us and be like maybe you should see this before you do and sometimes they're big shots in the dark totally not going to get nominated for anything but they try and good for them that's their job Mm. i don't think i kind of even got a link to this no 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 they just just assumed we wouldn't be interested it's one of those things where it like it debuted in korea and then the next year it was at some film festivals and then it finally was made available to the public this year so what what its release year is is a little bit hazy. It was released to the public in yeah. in the United States. Yeah, I did not in get July a, of this. I year. did not get like a like a yeah. critics award screening. This was it. just like, something I was looking around. I, and I, I I was just happened to be looking in the right place at the right time and found uh, this film in time for its release. And I'm so glad I did. I found mm. this little gem that was just hiding. And as such, I've been talking about it and talking about it, making sure people see this thing because it is great. It is uh, just as much as a, a moving piece of work about uh, adolescence as something like eighth grade or edge of 17. But this one is is a lot uh, a lot darker. There's a lot mm. a lot more of pain involved in a film like House of Hummingbird. Yeah. Uh, you know, eighth grade has, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, adolescent pain, but there's like a little bit of whimsy and levity to, to yeah. her life. Edge of 17 is a straight up comedy film. Uh, there's no comedy to her life. Her life is just hard. And your your heart goes out to this young girl and you want her to succeed. Uh, it takes place in 1994 and it revolves around a significant historical event uh, that took place in Korea in 1994. Uh, if you don't know what it is, I'll wait for you to discover what it is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of it goes to uh, sort of the pressures that are put on young people uh, in regards to the national character they're being raised inside of. And I yeah. think that's something uh, we're looking at in America a lot right now, the kinds of education we're giving to the kids, the kinds of things we're telling them, the sort of uh, things that we're perpetuating that are being passed down to us from politicians and how that's supposed to be guiding our moral character and how that can ultimately be very damaging for young people because they're, they don't care. <laughs> that's not, it's not what their interests are. Yeah. So please seek out house of hummingbird. It is, it is yeah, directed by Bora Kim. Uh, this is her first feature film, I believe. Mm. I think she's done a few shorts before this and I'm really eager to see what else she's going to do because goodness sake, this one is great. Awesome. Well, it's time. Uh-huh. We did it. We made it. <laughs> We're here. Uh, time to talk about our picks for the best uh, the best films of the year. And I do mean films. <laughs> because I am going to be an asshole. <laughs> and I'm going to make this. It, it's a tie, and yet it's not. This is my number one, too. <laughs> okay, I'm we did this. I'm glad we did this. Okay. Our pick, it sounds like our pick for the best film of the year is actually a cycle of films, all directed by Steve McQueen, and they carry the banner Small Axe. 
Uh, these films consist of Mangrove, Lovers Rock, uh, sorry, Lovers Rock, Red, White, and Blue, Alex Weedle, and Education. All of them uh, deal with uh, the the uh, community of um, it's West Indian West West Indies immigrants, West Indies in, immigrants. in England uh, yeah. throughout. Throughout, I guess, Steve McQueen's life from like yeah. the 60s up through like the, the early the, 80s. Like, like, uh, yeah, like the 80s. Yeah. Um, and uh, each different film focuses on a different either event or a different aspect uh, of the culture in that time. Hmm. Uh, Mangrove is the story. It's actually a legal thriller and it's one of the best legal thrillers I've seen hmm. all century. Like if you look at like the best legal films from like the year 2000 onward, this is right up there maybe my number one it's so rivetingly constructed mm. in a very excellent hollywood way uh then there's lover's rock which is a story of one night of a house party with incredible music incredible human connection very little plot and you don't fucking need it you are there <laughs> it's the ultimate party movie and mm. i mean that it's an incredible motion picture Red, White, and Blue stars John Boyega. It is a story of uh, a, a young black man who uh, decides, even though he was pursuing a career in science, a more lucrative and uh, uh, career that would probably have benefited him more, he decides he's going to join the police department and try to bring about change from within the department and finding out how difficult that is. It's very much sort of a modern Serpico, uh, but the real foundation of the movie is the relationship between Boyega and his father. Uh, who does not understand his son's decision at all. Mm. Um, there's Alex Weedle, which is actually a biopic of sorts of uh, the young life of Alex Weedle, who would who was initially uh, a uh, musician, DJ, uh, who then uh, served time and then uh, became a prominent writer and was indeed even worked a bit on these movies. Um, but I think the best part of that movie is the part that's just uh, Alex, who was... Alex Weedle had been like raised in like foster care and really wasn't immersed in his own culture. And when he's finally moves to a community where he's allowed to understand where he comes from and what music is like now and what it is like Mm -hmm. to be part of a community, that part is hauntingly beautiful. Uh, And then also uh, education, which is a story about a young boy who uh, is getting lost in the educational system. And because of systemic foundational racism, uh, they are not educating him, and because they're not educating him, they're assuming that he is a special needs case, and as a result, he is going to get lost in the system, and his entire future is going to be taken away with from him. Mm-hmm. And the efforts of a community in order to educate people about how the educational system is failing young people of color and how to bring them out of that. Every single one of those movies, some more so than others, mm-hmm. are excellent. I think... Uh, it- Red, white, and blue might be, um, I don't want to say the weakest because they're all strong. It's but the most it's, conventional in some ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, 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 personally, I think Alex Weedle is, uh, gets a little kind of lost in the weeds a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of trying to marry like the different timelines it's telling a story on. I, I, it's, I think it's good character work, though. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what carries Alex yeah. Weedle. Um, but the other three are... But let's not split hairs. Let's <laughs> not split hairs. They're, yeah. they're great films, and if they were the only films that came out, we would be saying, wow, Steve McQueen made some really interesting, excellent films about very particular experiences and different cultures, and um, how immersive and exciting that they were. Um, if he had released every single one of these small axe movies, one a year, mm. for five years, 
we would all be saying he deserves a special academy award for what an incredible body of work he did over only five years oh my god what an incredible some filmmakers go their entire lives and they don't come up with five films that complement each other and enrich each other and mm. enrich our experience and are these incredible exercises in empathy they're a massive step forward for him as a filmmaker as far as i'm concerned he put them out one a week this year <laughs> for five weeks that what was a shit it was a very exciting time yes, it and was. uh it, it wasn't just a, an exciting time um I felt like I was witnessing something very significant, yeah. uh, a, a, an actual important piece of film history, something that's going to be taught in schools, mm-hmm. uh, something that's going to be discussed and dissected in uh, studies of British film and studies of films about race in uh, studies of independent films, studies in uh, heck, even just technical release garbage. I think all I think of these we, things we, are part of this, this conversation that was brought up around small yeah. acts. That this movie breaks the rules about mm. what we expect a movie to be. Cause this yeah. is one and, singular artistic achievement and mm. it's also five distinct individual films. Uh, the last time I remember this happening was in the nineties with uh, Christoph Kislowski's Decalogue, yeah. uh, which was 10 films. Uh, each one about a different uh, commandment uh, that is themed around a different commandment. uh, And that was technically 88. Oh, was the, you're right. That sounded a little off to me, so I double checked it, but yeah. Three Colors was the 90s. Yeah. Um, Also similar. Indeed. Uh, And the Decalogue is like, oh, well, is this TV? Is it a miniseries? Are we going to focus on just one of the films? How about we just look at a cycle of films and see it as an a phenomenal achievement from a filmmaker who has an important voice and is actually telling these very compassionate, compelling stories and accept them all as a unit. I think it is perfectly acceptable to include the entire small act cycle as a unit and declare it the best film event of the year. The best filmmaking of the year, uh, the most exciting filmmaking of the year. Um, the most so, ambitious storytelling of the year. Yeah, and, it, the most beautiful, beautiful mm. stories. Like, even and, if 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 we had separated these, mm. if we had said we can't pick all small exits to cheat, Lovers Rock, Mangrove, and probably Education would have ended up on my list anyway. <laughs> yeah, and the other much. two probably would have been <laughs> runners up. Mm. If like, I, if I could only pick one, I'd pick Lovers Rock. But that yeah. that I don't want to imply that the other four are not no. worthwhile i mean you can have your preferences some people mm. have asked me like how would you rank them and i'm like i i guess i like some more than others but when you make a whole bunch of a thing you're bound to have a preference here and there yeah. one's bound to connect more than the other but what i can say is that although i think glover's rock is maybe the most transcendent of them all and mangrove is maybe the most like uh sort of st- I, I saw started watching mangrove Late at night, like one thirty in the morning. And it's a long movie. It's like over two hours, that one. Yeah. And the the longest of the, the side. Oh, by far. The other one, some of them like barely clock in in an hour. Um, I saw the thing at like one thirty, and I was tired. I did not sleep a wink. <laughs> I was like, so oh, riveting. maybe oh, it'll be a shame if I have to break it up. But so be it. I have to, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I have to cut myself some slack. And if I have to watch half today and half tomorrow, I think the universe will forgive me. No, we're watching all of this fucking thing right now because it's impeccable. It is fucking mm. impeccable. Mangrove. But regardless of how I feel about them individually, they all complement each other. And knowing more about the culture of, uh, West Indies uh, immigrants in Britain in this era, in this mm. 15, 20 year span, 
informs the other films. So knowing how music affects people's lives in Alex Weedle informs Lover's Rock. There was a point in Lover's Rock where I actually thought they were going to connect and I wouldn't I'm, have been shocked. I'm kind of glad they don't yeah. in, in a technical way. I, I, that was a, a shtick that um, Kislowski pulled in the Three Colors movies. Yeah. Like a character from one would show up in the background of a scene in, in of another. Yeah. And then at the end of the third one, it's like they, they Just do to come show together that they're in a weird all way. Yeah. in the same universe. Yeah. And and that's the least interesting thing about those movies. No, that's that's just kind of just showing off a little. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a little wink. And I'm yeah. glad that Steve McQueen isn't winking. He's he's too focused on telling the story at hand. Yeah, but like my point is that even though they're not, it's not the same party mm-hmm. that Alex Weedle plays at. Um, because I spent a night at that party in Lover's Rock, yeah. I understand more about that scene in Alex Weedle than I ever would have otherwise. Mm. And that goes the same for all of it. Because I saw Red, White, and Blue, I know more about the cops in Mangrove. Yeah. And vice mm. versa. Mm. And that's incredible. This is one of the great cinematic achievements I have had the pleasure mm. of witnessing in my career as a critic. Yeah. Period. And I couldn't think of, there's nothing else that it's, there's incredible movies here. Mm -hmm. Like if I were like to pick like a runner up, like a one or two runner up, like the vast night promising young woman, probably 40 year old version, but this is number one with a bullet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, There were so many others to choose from and I, I feel bad that I had to, sort of whittle my list down to just these 10. Well, why don't you, but there there wasn't a question that small acts wasn't the achievement of 2020. I think that's entirely the case. Well, why don't we listen? Um, we encourage everyone to see small acts. Yes. Some people have been calling it a TV series. It's even like being pushed for like Emmy consideration instead of Oscar consideration. I don't give a shit. That's not my job. We, we, we're not on the voting bodies for the, uh, the Emmys or the Oscars. Yeah. Uh, we're critics. Yeah. We see a, a significant film and we're going to talk about it. Yeah. If you want to um, call it a TV is, show, you knock yourself out. This is not like Twin Peaks where it's episodic serialized storyline. This is not Twin Peaks following is t- rules. <laughs> Twin Peaks TV series to my eye. Yeah. And Small if you wanna... X is a cycle of films to my eye and I'm going to yeah. talk about them in, as such. And I agree entirely 100%. Um, but listen, we both have, I'm sure, a decent uh, list yeah. of runners up. Um, and uh, take as much or as little time as you want to talk yeah. about. Oh uh, well, let's see. You talked about host that was on my runners up. Mm-hmm. I talked about driveways, which is in my top ten. Why not? Yeah. Um, uh, I was very very fond of Autumn De Wilde's version of Emma, which came out earlier this year. Yeah, new, that's new one version. I'm mad I never got to. Based on the yeah the the uh, Jane Austen novel, it I, stars uh, Anya Taylor Joy yeah. as Emma. It is sumptuous. It's a mm. it's a cake of a movie. You want to lick it. I've been saving that for mm. a day when I need that, and mm. it hasn't come yet because yeah. I've never been able to relax. But I really want to see it. Uh, really if if you really want to get into sort of a classic lit like British lit groove, you can watch Emma. Then you can follow follow it up with that David Copperfield movie that came out earlier mm. this year. And then there was also a Secret Garden film this year. Oh yeah, I remember and those are those, those are yeah. all pretty good. That's so awesome. Emma, I think, is the best of the three, but they're all good. Then you can uh, watch that Apple series Emily about Emily Dickinson where she's cool and living in like a Sofia Coppola world. <laughs> she's got a Game Boy and chucks. Uh, no, she, not really. Yeah. I haven't I, watched I, it. I don't I, know. From what I understand, it's like full of anachronisms, yeah, like deliberately. Uh, the, the one film that I 
had, had on a previous like draft of my list, which I know you didn't like actually, was I'm thinking of ending things, the Charlie Kaufman movie. Oh yeah, I hated. Uh, that. I love. I'm thinking of ending okay. things. This weird surrealistic uh, delve into uh, anxiety. Essentially, it's like dissecting anxiety and how that can feel like a dream and make the world feel like a dream. Yeah, I didn't recognize that on any human level. It felt like a very, uh, very um, masculine, borderline sexist, neurotic version of anxiety that which is fine. But like I felt like it was afraid to confront that. Mm. In a way that I found actually very cloying, but I can't really yeah. talk about that without going to like the twists or whatever. I, I suppose not, but yeah. uh, I, I appreciate what Charlie Kaufman is doing and mm. uh, the way he's examining uh, his own feelings of anxiety and disgust or something I actually recognize. Okay. Uh, so I, I really got into the groove of Unthinking of Ending Things. Um, a, a film I really, really loved that I have trouble selling to others was called The Painted Bird. It's a Czech film. It's three hours long, and it is a litany of unending misery. It uh, takes place out in... Sold. out. It's uh, shot in black and white. It takes place out in the countryside. It's about a, a young boy who suffers uh, torture after torture after torture after torture, and that's the movie. Uh, at first he's, he's being abused by his caretaker. Uh, the caretaker has a heart attack and dies when, uh, he's examining her with a candle and discovers she's dead. He drops the candle and burns his own house down, has to move from caretaker to caretaker where he gets to witness all kinds of horrendous violence. He's buried up to his neck and crows nearly peck his eyes out in one scene. Uh, somebody, uh, points out to him, and this is where the film gets its title, that if you catch a bird and you paint it, the other birds recognize that it is different and they attack it and they kill it and it dies. And that's what life is like. If you're different, you will be attacked and you will die. And this is World War II, so there's also combat and all kinds of violence and indignities going on all around him. It's exhilarating to witness this level of pain. Uh, there's something kind of cathartic about that about this litany of, of suffering, uh, in, in, uh, almost on a philosophical level. I'm happy. You're happy, but mm. that sounds so unappealing. To me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I understand. You, it's you, a you really sell. Gotta, it's so uh, hard. It's the job of a film critic mm. to take a movie, especially one that isn't being marketed very well uh. to like, to, to let people know that what a good one is and like why they'll dig it. Well, and it's can be really, really hard sometimes. That's a hard job. Yeah. It's not always an easy job. Well, I, and, I, I have to get one, you excited about the movie the same way I'm excited about yeah, it. Yeah, and I, I don't think you've cracked how to get me excited <laughs> about that one yet. I encourage you to keep trying. Okay. Um, all right, what else was that? Um, uh, I, there was a, a, another film about uh, suffering. This is about a, a, a housewife who's suffering in the suburbs. It's called The Swerve, starring Azura mm. Sky, who gives one of the best performances of the year as this uh, woman who is suffering very small indignities at the hands of her husband or two sons who completely take advantage of her, talk down to her, never ask about how she is and how that has driven her to the brink of almost insane pain hmm. and uh, how, how she has to sort of start rethinking her life or, or just fall into a complete bit of despair, which she might do. Um, I was very fond of host. I like, she dies tomorrow. We mentioned mm-hmm. there was a really good horror film that came out called relic, this wonderful intergenerational story about um, mental illness and how it's passed from generation to generation. Uh, Spike Lee's film, Defy Bloods, is so excellent. close to my top 10. Yeah. I, I struggled <laughs> 
with whether or not that made it into my top 10. And yeah. then I was like, you know what? Spike Lee is Spike Lee. People will see that one. But that is a fucking great movie. Yeah, and that was if I had a, if we had 11, that would be my 11. It's, it's, it's a so corker good. of an action yeah. picture, but it's also, you know, like Spike Lee, it's very forthright and going to punch yeah. you in the face Delroy with Lindo, uh, a lot of really important messages. Delroy Lindo, incredible fucking performance in that movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, there was a really sweet gen, and uh, this was a great year for lesbians in film. There are a lot of films about lesbian characters. Uh, we had uh, the half of it. We had Happiest Season. Uh, there was a film called Tangerine. There was a lesbian couple in The New Mutants. Uh, many, many other examples. Mm. One of the ones I liked was called To the Stars, mm. which was uh, about two uh, young girls who find a form a very uh, warm friendship in uh, 1950s Oklahoma and how uh, they need to sort of work through the oppression around them to find friendship and something that might be romance, but maybe not between the two of them. And there's some things are really uh, stated very clearly, but the actual uh, uh, difficulty they have and the catharsis they have of finding one another in this oppressive environment is really, really wonderful. Um, I was fond of a film called St. Francis. Oh, also came very yeah, close to which, my which was, yeah. was, uh, came out earlier in the year about uh, a young woman who take, looks after a young child and starts to come to realizations about herself. Uh, mm-hmm. Also really great portrayal mm-hmm. of the, um, of the lesbian relationship of the, mm-hmm. the, the, the people, the, yeah, there you the, go. The, the child that she's babysitting has mm-hmm. two moms and um, over time she begins to understand like the depths of their relationship and mm. that could have been a great movie in and of itself but the actual a story is really beautiful too yeah, yeah. great great writer director on that yeah. one the movie deserves more more attention my favorite animated film of the year was not wolf walkers it was a weird ass peculiar little film called the willoughby's i liked it a lot i bet we'd really cute about uh these children who are they're not orphans, but their parents hate them, and uh, they so they contrive a reason to get the parents out of the house, just so they don't have to live among their cruel parents what, anymore. What they're trying to do is it's, they uh, they send their parents on like a world like tour, like hey, you should go see the world, yeah. and every single stop is like designed to maybe to, hopefully to maybe kill, kill them. them. There's there's like. <laughs> This is like Roald Dahl, Edward Gorey, Tim Burton territory. Like yeah. there's something kind of twisted and peculiar about the, the Willoughby's, which I find completely delicious. I, I'm, I'm mad that more people didn't see that movie. I like yeah. that movie a lot. It, it's on yeah. Netflix now. If you have a yeah. Netflix subscription, just, just fire it, just, it up. It's just one of the movies that Netflix buried, and I don't know why. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great the, film the, for weird The kids. Willoughby's is, yeah, it's just yeah. so wonderful. Weird kids or adults who remember what it was like to be a weird kid. Yeah. They love yeah. that movie, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I was reminded a lot of those kids from the box trolls. Yeah. Oh no, your parents were kidnapped. Oh no, and, and the trolls kidnapped you too? And they tore them limb from limb? And did you get to watch? I mean, did they make you watch? <laughs> <laughs> box trolls is underrated. Yeah, great. Uh, a really wonderful documentary film uh, called Crip Camp. Made my uh, runners for, up too. It was, was really wonderful about a, a, a summer camp, like an overnight summer camp for disabled kids uh-huh. and how, what an empowering experience it was for them. And we get to yeah. catch up with them as adults and how they have all become activists now. Yeah. That, that ripple effect yeah. basically like that of, of, you know, living in a, in an America, which was not made for people with disabilities mm. and finally getting to live in a place that was, and how that showed them that it's possible to achieve that. Yeah. And then they went out and they 
fucking did. <laughs> and they, they pursued it yeah. for the rest of their and, lives. And they did yeah. made great strides. It's a really great yeah. movie. And, and, and uh, there's still a long way to go, yeah. but boy, did they make a lot of great strides. Uh, another documentary, but one that's not so uplifting, is called Collective, which is mm. about uh, the, just the horrors of and failings of bureaucracy about... Uh, it, it, it starts with a fire in a club called Collective and how that revealed that uh, the the club wasn't up to snuff and that replaced mm. this uh, provisional government and how hospitals are actually now not in a place where they could take care of people. So a lot of the people who were burnt in this fire ended up dying in the hospital because the, the hospitals weren't being very well maintained and how all of this red tape has led to this ever cascading uh, phenomenon of the government not getting any shit done. And it'll, it'll just outrage you and make you feel completely pissed off. I did put mm. the invisible man on my, sp- on my spot and a horror movie that came out earlier this year, uh, was Richard Stanley's color out of space. Uh, uh, that's, that's a, that's a little bit of a bonkers movie too. I, I, I regret that a, I haven't seen it yet. And, mm. uh, but largely I haven't seen it because I can't review it because one of the stars is a very good friend of mine. Yeah. who is also my partner in the movie trivia showdown, Brendan Meyer, uh, it's been a pleasure to see other people say it's great. I love uh, Lovecraft is a really tough nut to crack in terms of adaptations. So it seems it happens it, so infrequently. So there's a lot of people try only like a handful actually get it right and or get mm. close. And the fact that people say that one works is awesome. And I keep meaning to get to it, but I just haven't yet. Okay. And that's your, uh, that's the end of your runners uh, up. Yeah. That's where my runners up. All right. We covered a lot of my territory. Uh, the Korean horror film hashtag alive. Oh, I didn't um, see a lot. It's actually yeah. a really good double feature with Host. Uh, it's a story about a young shiftless layabout uh, who had one job today. He was supposed to go to the market, and he just spaced out and played video games. And then he realizes he probably should have gone to the market because in the afternoon the zombie apocalypse hit, and now he's going to be trapped in his apartment for months. <laughs> and it's just him trying to make it work, live blogging. like, And it ends up just becoming about the importance of any human connection, and it's really good. Um, I was, one I'm surprised didn't make your list Blood Machines I like Blood Machines Blood Machines I've, is cool I've, I have no complaints about Blood Machines Blood Machines is cool it's another mm-hmm. one that kind of messes with the format of filmmaking it's one film but it's kind of told in three parts for reasons which mm-hmm. seem kind of arbitrary to me and, yeah and all told all three parts only equal mm-hmm. about 45 minutes it's, it's a big giant really imaginative space opera with incredible electronic music. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually, in a, in a way that I understand some people have argued that maybe it's ineffective, uh, but I think it's trying to tell a feminist story about the way that uh, women are treated as objects mm-hmm. and by literalizing that and how it's a story of a tech revolution about how uh, technology is revolting against a male-dominated society in the yeah. future, mm-hmm. and uh, all of the technology has souls, and all of those souls are women, and those women are uh, unifying. Yeah. And it's a really exciting, interesting thriller, very, very dark, uh, but it's really cool, and uh, it's easily the prettiest CGI I've seen in a couple of yeah. years. It's yeah, really, they, really They cool actually like, use, like color and imagery in, in creative, exciting ways. Yeah. Uh, you've already mentioned Crypt Camp. You already mentioned The Five Bloods. We already mentioned First Cow. A uh, horror movie I really liked from early this year that nobody really talked about and everyone kind of forgot about was Gretel and Hansel. Oh, yeah, um, with Alice Kriege as the witch. Yeah, Alice Kriege is fantastic in that movie. Really interesting, fascinating production design. Um, I It stuck with me in a way I didn't expect it to, um, but it's not just amazing enough to make my top ten. But I really like that a lot of people see it. Uh, a movie some people are uncomfortable calling a movie Hamilton. 
<laughs> it's a it's a film stage mm. performance. I don't give a shit. It's a movie. It's a great oh, movie. I, you know what? I should have put Hamilton on somewhere in my runners. It's a I, really I, so, really. What a, what a, I, I what finally a... I finally got to see it. Exactly. I, I was not I was not a, a Hamilton head. I would have been if I was yeah. in some anywhere near New York, but uh Never got to see it. Didn't get the soundtrack. I was outside of the Hamilton phenomenon and they put it on Disney plus mm-hmm. and I got to see it. And it's great. And I loved it. <laughs> it's a really, really excellent. And again, I, I was completely a convert, like, like a quarter of the way through. I'm like, this, this is a great thing. There are legit grievances with Hamilton and the way that it tackles American history and what it chooses to leave out. Uh, yeah. And those are fair and you should read all of those studies, but I don't think any of that takes away from how incredibly alive and dynamic and, playful it is the mm-hmm. just the wordplay alone i think um is just absolutely stunning and the cast is really really great and particularly fun to david diggs who i think steals the whole fucking yeah whole yeah. fucking thing uh so really really great um a movie i liked more than most other people happiest season uh which starts oh, yeah. off it starts off as a standard kind of rom-com focusing on uh two women who are in love and they're gonna meet um, one of their uh, families, but wouldn't you know it, last minute, I never told them I was gay. And so they have to pretend, and at first you think it's going to be pretty cliche. And then you realize it's actually not a rom-com. It's actually a rom-com that turns into a pretty harrowing story about living in a psychologically abusive household. Mm. And, on, and it manages to still be funny, but it's actually about way more than that. And I came pretty close to putting this on my top 10 because I actually think this is a really insidious way to tell a fascinating drama that is also hilarious. Mm. Uh, so I really love this movie. I think it's going to age real well. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That's also a great movie. Great movie. Incredible cast. Uh, don't, Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman for the win. That, that it's not on my top 10 is just it was a really fucking good year. Uh, Nomadland we already talked about. Uh, the Hunt is a wicked little film. <laughs> I, I regret missing The Hunt. This, this seemed kind of my it, up, up my alley. The Hunt is was mad at discourse. It was mad at the way that people were treating each other online. And boy, did that become completely irrelevant in 2020. <laughs> and especially as a lot of the things that the movie was just sort of mad at was like, oh, people are taking themselves so seriously. And I'm like, no, everything is really fucking serious in 2020. And this was badly timed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you can get on the wavelength, it is pretty fun, mean spirited movie. And Betty Gilpin is next level good in it. Nice. So I, I like it more than most, but I totally get it. it's not what people want to see. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, what do we got here? Palm Springs is a really, really fun take on the Groundhog Day uh, concept. Great cast, great screenplay. Uh, St. Francis, wonderful motion picture. She Dies Tomorrow, wonderful motion picture. Vampires versus the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful film in the tradition of Monster Squad and Goonies in a very. Uh, contemporary and also very socially conscious way and i just thought yeah. it was a real fun flick and then lastly the willoughby's okay the willoughby's are great <laughs> yeah um yeah and those are our picks for the best films of the year there's stuff we didn't see mm-hmm. there's stuff we're gonna keep trying to catch up on for the rest of our lives because and, that's what it is and i apologize to everyone for not liking birds of prey um, it just wasn't didn't hit me in the right way what you, can i say you didn't have, you didn't have well, it's fine. I'm more mad at you for wolf walkers, really. I thought you liked it more than that. Um, oh, I, no, I, I don't want to say it. I don't want to pretend that wolf walkers is, is a failure in any kind of no, way. No, no, no. 
I, I, just, I, I, was only, I thought you liked it more than that. That's I was, all. I was explaining, you know, it's not on my top 10 list, but no. I'm, I'm not going to discourage anybody from seeing it. I think I, it's quite good. I struggle to explain why Nomadland isn't on my top 10 list. Right. I see everything great about it. It mm. just didn't connect with me on that level. And all so, right. runners up, very good film, but not on my top 10. And there's room for plenty of movies because in the end, when all is said and done, I know some people are, I've heard some people saying like, oh God. I can't even think of like five good movies that came out this year. Then you were not looking. <laughs> How many did you watch? Yeah. <laughs> Clearly you were not looking because yeah. there's an incredible, an incredible, an incredible group of films mm. that came out this year. So uh, those are our lists. Uh, we'll be back next week with more movie reviews. But uh, in the meantime, we hope you're all having uh, a, a boy. Did the new year start hard, didn't it? Just hit the ground running and then splattered Look, on the asphalt. No, the, this this is just like the 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 last bit of 2020 kind of coming out. I this hope is, that's this the is case, this is not for, this is not foreboding. This, this is finale right. stuff. I really really hope so because mm. this has been it's been rough. Um, thank you everybody. Thank you everybody. Uh, like and again, without going into detail, we we had some really rough times here uh, in the household. And thank you everybody who tweeted us to say your condolences and everything that that meant a lot to us. Mm. Um, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Of course, uh, please subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, you can also uh, subscribe on Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. If you want more exclusive content, uh, we have lots of podcasts that are available only for patrons, podcasts about uh, Batman, uh, Disney, the Oscars, Star Trek. We do commentary tracks. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there. You can vote for future episodes of various shows that we do. Um, and uh, we just want to give a very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom 2020 would not have been possible for us as, mm. as podcasters. It just wouldn't have been a thing. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. So thank you, everybody, from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, if you want to talk to us about our picks for the best movies of the year, you want to tell us that, I don't know, the driveways sucked. <laughs> like you hated driveways. And <laughs> what, a piece, us, what a piece of crap driveways. <laughs> weird film to pick on, but okay. Like whatever, if you, if you have strong opinions about our picks, if you want to share your own picks mm. uh, for the best films of the decade, we already had someone, uh, not decade, best year, decade so far, I guess. Uh, if you want to share your own picks for the best films of 2020, we would love to hear them. Uh, and uh, some people have already started sending those in. Uh, and you can send us an email. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. And of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And that is it for this week. So thank you everybody for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>